BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Peter Sampson with the bald faced truth. Welcome into the program. I am Peter Sampson, in for John Canzano. He's taking a few days off. This is still the bald faced truth statewide on the BFT radio network. Appreciate you rolling with me on your Tuesday. And uh, some sad news today to start the show. I'm sure you're aware by now. Uh, you know, it unfortunately seemed kind of like a foregone conclusion yesterday. Uh, Mississippi State coach, former Washington State coach, Mike Leach, has passed away at the age of 61. And, uh, I mean, things certainly didn't look good, you know, when we got the news that uh, something was going on. Uh, at you know Sunday night into Monday morning, but you can only go on what's confirmed. You want to be respectful to the situation. I only spent a minute talking about it yesterday, but if you uh, kind of look through, you know, at people that were close to the situation, you knew that the situation was dire. But out of respect, you know, I'm not going to go on yesterday, and I'm not going to eulogize a guy that's you know still fighting for his life and. Uh, it's just not the proper thing to do. But uh, Mike Leach uh, has passed away, reportedly from complications from a heart condition. Uh, the family did share the news in a statement today. They wrote Mike was a giving and attentive husband, father, and grandfather. Uh, he was able to participate in organ donation as a final act of charity. They say they go on to say we are supported and uplifted by the outpouring of love and prayers from family, friends, Mississippi State University, the hospital staff, football fans around the world. Thank you for sharing the joy of our beloved husband and father's life. And uh, I mean, 61. I mean, I remember being a kid or even a young man and thinking 61 is old. It is not old. It's uh, it's far too soon. And of course, you know, Mike was, uh, he had been dealing with pneumonia this season. He had been dealing with, uh, frankly, heart failure uh, already this season uh, and uh, sort of the after effects of that. And, uh, you know, whether it just caught up with him, this was a related thing. It, it, frankly, it doesn't matter because ultimately now you have uh, you have uh, a spouse and kids and, uh, and a football team uh, that are all uh, missing. Uh, Mike Leach at this moment, and we've had Mike on this show so many times. I I can't even tell you how many times uh, we've had Mike on. Going back years to, uh, I mean, frankly, we had him on just a couple months ago. And uh, going back through audio, Mike Leach was always so much fun. And uh, Stephen Vaughn, you know, I for most of those conversations. And I've talked to Mike before, but most of those conversations, it was Kanzano, and I was sitting where you are. And while it's certainly not maybe a Bill Walton situation uh, when it comes to the clock, uh, Mike Leach could wax poetic, nostalgic about any topic whatsoever. And uh, I had to I had to be on my game to keep this show from sort of going off the rails. But frankly, that's kind of what we loved about the guy, you know? Yeah, you just you never knew what he was going to say. You know, he had so many just what seemed like random random spouts during games, before games, after games, like you said, in interviews one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, you know, that, that's what you love about the guy. And not only that, but you know, a great football coach that really 
you know, he evolutionized the game of football. Like he, the way that teams run a lot of their offenses now is based off what he was doing really early in his career and what they were doing, you know, down there at Texas Tech, uh, places like that. So uh, definitely a loss for the college football world today. And you know, like you said, sixty-one years old, man. That doesn't, you know, when you're younger, it does seem really old at sixty-one years old. But as you get older, you definitely realize it's not that far away from where you actually are. So. Uh, you know, thoughts going out to everybody out in that area. Just everyone around uh, the cultural world. It's, it's definitely a loss today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I do. I want to go ahead and play a little bit of Mike Leach here. Uh, we certainly have a good amount of Mike Leach audio uh, just from this very show. So we dug into the archives. And this one goes back a ways. Now, it's one of those things where you want to find something that's good, that's fun, maybe lets him, you know, go off a little bit. But also, I don't want to necessarily play an hour-long conversation here. So this goes back. I just want to play this for you. If you enjoyed the conversations that Mike Leach would have with John Canzano, I'm going to play one. This is from about eight and a half years ago. This is April 2nd, 2014. Mike Leach uh, on this very program uh, speaking with John Canzano. Mike Leach joining us, Washington State coach. When you were a young head coach, first starting, how long did it take you to get comfortable? Well, you never get comfortable, you know. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like people describe being married. I mean, there's there's no real uh, lessons for it. Uh, and, you know, I think that, because, you know, you learn something about your team, yourself, your staff, uh, different every day. And part of it is because those people change a lot. You know, you change and so do they. There's no real, but uh, they say no real <coughs> lessons for it. And I think that's pretty accurate. And I think it's accurate because um, it's really, it's kind of a balancing act. I mean, there's, there's going to be things that will, uh, spark your team, spark your effort, inspire the people around you. And uh, so you try to, you know, make sure you push that, capitalize on that. And then and then there's, uh, well, then there's going to be stuff that crosses your desk, you know, from one day to the next. And some of those problems are best outlasted. You know, just, just wait them out and <clears throat> they'll solve themselves. I mean, there's things that constantly need to need to be addressed in order to keep your team uh, as uh, competitive as they can, working as hard as they can. But, you know, one time I had a kid busted for throwing snowballs. And uh, <laughs> and, and so then, you know, it's like, okay, uh, you know, heck, I'd kick the guy off for stealing. I'd kick the guy off for drugs. You know, and then... Uh, and this was, you know, two years ago. And I said, well, this guy threw snowballs. So I go, all right. Um, and finally, I asked the officer. I said, now, help me out here because you're in law enforcement. I said, what, what's the, what should the penalty for snowballs be? And, then, of course, there's a long pause. And and uh, then he started laughing. He said, well, and, and as I pointed out, I said, you know, now, I'm from Wyoming, and I've thrown a lot of snowballs. And I've thrown snowballs at a lot of things I probably shouldn't have. But what's the penalty for snowballs? <laughs> Long pause, and then he kind of started laughing, you know. But, you know, I, I think everybody gets wrapped up in what they're doing. And, it, you know, and, and, and yeah, 
in the back of your mind you feel like it's somehow more serious than world peace and and then you gotta periodically step back and you know what am i doing here but yeah the penalty for snowballs wasn't very much i must say Mike Leach, Washington State coach. I hear people say all the time, Mike Leach went to Pullman. He's brought all this energy and enthusiasm back. You're Mike Leach, so when you look around, do you go, what's the big deal, or do you realize the the job that you've done? Uh, Mike, well, first of all, I don't know if any of that's necessarily true. I mean, it's a great place and had a lot of energy from from, uh, the beginning. I mean, you you got everybody... uh, it reminds me kind of of camp, you know. Now, I didn't go to camp much as a kid. Went to a Boy Scout camp one time. But how you, how you visualize it, I mean, <laughs> heck, everybody's packed up there on the hill and everybody's doing the same thing. And and then if you're a college kid, there's gorgeous women there besides. And then so it's like everybody being at camp doing the same thing. So I think I already had quite a bit of energy. And then... Uh, you know, and, and we obviously have our struggles. Uh, you know, we're kind of an inspired team right now, and we're a, a team that's uh, playing hard, trying hard, not always with precision, because uh, we're a team of sophomores, redshirt freshmen, and freshmen. But uh, I've been pleased with our work so far. And so you kind of one day to the next and do the best you can and, you know, hope it's enough. And, it, you know, and it's funny. I mean, a lot of really successful people I've run across. Uh, everybody's scrambling a little more than you'd think. Uh, uh, I don't think it's quite as bad as the fellow that said, um, uh, he said something like people live in quiet desperation. I don't think it's quite that bad, but I I think everybody's <laughs> scrambling a little more than they care to let on or they, than you might think. You're you're made the stops that you're most known for in Lubbock and in Pullman. Um, do you find more comfort in places like that, or is coaching coaching? You could be in L.A. or Miami or wherever. Well, I think coaching's coaching. But what I like about here, are a couple things that I think are really good here. One was what you know the three things I was looking for was one I wanted a college town. You know that uh, uh, you know that has an incredible amount of energy. Any thing, uh, you know, the team feels accountable to the students because they're you know the whole place is abuzz with what you're doing. And then you know after a big game, the whole town goes crazy. And you know we beat USC and this deck on top of the dorm. I doubt those people ever went to bed. And then. Uh, <laughs> Uh, where, you know, some places you walk down two blocks uh, from the stadium and they don't even know you had a game, you know? Yeah. And so so I like the college town thing. Then I like to um, – uh, uh, I wanted a place that I felt like was undervalued, you know, that had the resources uh, to do big things and that, uh, uh, you know, me, my coaches, and uh, our players could make a difference. And I, I really felt like uh, Washington State was like that. I mean, for a variety of reasons, they falling on hard times. But they'd also uh, gone to a couple Rose Bowls, you know. And then, so I like that. And then in particular, and, uh, and I've said this before, 
uh, most college administrations are banana republics, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I mean, uh, you know, they're they're territorial, they're selfish, and quite frankly, if they wouldn't uh, get in trouble for being armed, they'd probably shoot one another. And um, uh, you know, so I wanted to place that one like that that really had a teamwork effort, which I really felt was a little more ideal than what I was probably going to find. But, you know, we've got a great president that uh, uh, trusted our AD when he hired him. And, and, and the biggest thing is just kind of the trust that everybody trusts each other to do their job. And then, you know, they said they're going to build all these facilities, which uh, uh, I believe, Bill, and I thought they'd get them built and I thought they'd get them done. But I did not think they'd be on time because I'd never seen them on time before in history, you know. Uh, I've been in the middle of uh, building facilities two and a half other times. Never seen them built on time. And um, uh, but you know everybody working together, pulling for the same thing. Uh, I think uh, there's that aspect, and I think the fact that it's a college town contributes uh, to that too. Mike Leach, Washington State football coach, is our guest. Spring football, is there a guy every year that you kind of secretly go, okay, I think this kid's going to take a huge step forward, and for whatever reason he does or doesn't? Yeah, uh, you know, there's not a one. Uh, uh, because you're always surprised. Like, uh, you know, right now, uh, you know, you'll go along and there you'll go through winter off season and go out there in spring. Some of the young somebody's playing real well, like Robert Lewis is playing real well right now. And up to this point, kind of explosive and inconsistent, but he's he's doing some good things. Got a freshman old lineman that should probably be going to the prom rather than up here in uh, Washington State uh, just yet. We want him anyway, but. Uh, Sean Kreps, I think, is doing some good stuff. Just kind of needs to learn the where and when. But uh, then we got some defensive guys. Tiny uh, uh, Nemitsuas uh, looked really good yesterday. Uh, got some young DBs. So, in other words, uh, they're surprises. Like you know, Marcellus Pippins, uh, Charleston White, and obviously Corners, a group that. Uh, that we're going to have new faces out, but um, it's always a surprise. And then, uh, and then, you know, literally, uh, it's almost been. I feel like uh, me and my staff do a pretty good job of evaluating talent, as in recruit this guy, not that guy. And then after signing day. Um, You'll get the, well, who's going to make the biggest difference? Who's going to start as a freshman? You know, you can get that stuff. And then and then I'll fall into the temptation, worse before than now. I'll fall into the temptation, oh, I think this guy. And I'll rattle off some can't-miss guy, you know, that's just so physically imposing that there's no way you can stop him, you know, that type of thing. And, uh, I mean, it's like a curse. You know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's literally like a curse. We're talking, 
we're talking uh, great, talented players that, for whatever reason, as soon as I think he's the one that's going to contribute first, uh, the gods are determined to make me wrong, and they do it at that kid's uh, expense or something like that. Because I'm just telling you, as soon as I uh, highlight one or pick them out, then they're in trouble. But uh, I think we got a good class coming in, too. Excited to see what they bring to the table. Mike Leach, Washington State, our guest. Uh, Coach, we always have great conversations on aliens and ghosts on this show. Um, are you uh, are you watching anything interesting on television? What do you think has redeeming value? Oh, Blacklist. Blacklist is a good one. Um, I think pretty well written. Um, you know, the the uh, bad guys are worse than bad. And then plus they uh, they're always really clever black bad guys that uh, can get into more stuff than uh, you know. It's bad enough they're a bad guy and that they're gonna you know, go kill good people. These guys are really smart about it that uh, has an almost indefensible quality. Then, of course, there's another bad guy that helps you straighten it out. Hey, how you guys doing? Good to see you. Are you walking campus right now? Uh, yeah, I'm, well, I've got a walking thing going. Yeah. What's that, uh, what is that about? You getting in shape here? A little of both. Yeah, multitasking. <laughs> I love uh, it. So what, uh, yeah, so what I do, it's... Uh, it's three and a half miles uh, over the river and through the woods, uh, and it's hilly here. So it's about three and a half miles to campus, and I, uh, so you know, you take off walking. I do all my phone calls, and because uh, I was thinking I wouldn't have time for this. Yeah. And so and so well, but you know, truthfully, I probably on a slow day between going there and back, so it's seven miles round trip, so between, and it's hilly here, which helps too, between going there and back, it, um, on a slow day, I'm probably off the phone 20 minutes, and uh, on a busy day, uh, between there and back, I'll still be on the phone when I get to each destination. It's worked out pretty good. Does it allow you to and, do uh, some do some thinking, too, if you're not on the phone? Kind of clears your mind a little bit. That's a little more important than you you think. Uh, kind of get a, a, a little clarity going. Um, oh, Americans, you want to see that one too? Don't miss that one. Of course, you got to start that one at the beginning. Uh, you ever see that? No, I bet everybody else here is pumping a fist and going yes and pointing at me because I I swear by True Detective. Did you see that? Oh, yeah, I saw all of them, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, they did really good. The atmosphere, character's really good. At the end, they kind of threw up their hands and said, well, it's time to wrap this up. Let's wrap it up. All right, that's it then, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, but, but uh, you know, the characters, were, I thought both of them were great, you know? Yeah. Uh, of course, I know Matthew, and then, um, and then, uh, but uh, I thought really did a good job. I mean, as far as, because you see them kind of transform in the process. And, of course, there's a long enough show you get to kind of reveal that stuff. But I did think it was pretty impressive. Coach, I really appreciate you spending some of your walk with us. And congratulations and uh, good luck to you on spring football. We love having you on. Well, thanks so much for having me. And always good to talk to you. And, uh, 
Yeah, usually I uh, I think of about half a dozen questions after I hang up. I wish I'd asked you, but uh, that's the way these deals go, you know. You always call us back. Well, I'm here. <laughs> All I'm right. Here. I'm walking. I'm walking over the river now. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we got uh, we got students measuring river stuff. I guess. All right. All right, Coach. Thank you. Yeah, good talking to you. You too, Coach. There's Mike Leach, Washington State. That is how I will always remember Mike Leach, walking around campus, talking about TV shows, snowball fights, and everything else. He was absolutely one of a kind. Mike Leach dead at 61. All right, we'll go away on the other side. We'll come back, maybe talk a little more Mike Leach, maybe play a little bit something more recent later in the program, but we've got a big sports day to kick around. Kyler Murray done for the year. The NBA announced they're renaming a bunch of their awards and a whole lot more. Peter Sampson in for John Canzano. It's the Bald Face Truth on the BFT Radio Network. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back in. Peter Sampson in for Kanzano. It's the bald-faced truth on the BFT radio network. The NBA announced today they are renaming their most valuable player award to the Michael Jordan Trophy, which makes sense. Jordan, highly regarded as the greatest player of all time. I know some people say LeBron. And uh, they're wrong. It's okay. No, we're not doing that. There are several topics that are lazy sports radio. LeBron versus MJ, grass, turf, Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame, yes or no. You know, could Larry Bird succeed today the same way he did in the 80s? It goes on and on. Not going to do that. But uh, there's a new trophy, 23.6 inches tall, 23.6 pounds which represents Jordan's jersey number and number of championships. Five-sided base is a nod to Jordan's five league MVPs. The namesake badge is six-sided, which again references the six NBA championships. 15-degree angle of the base is a nod to his 15-season career. Whole bunch of uh, different little references here. And that's fine. Frankly, I'm good with it. It's one of those things like I don't really have a strong opinion on whether it's a good or bad move. I just think it's a move. You know what I mean? I mean, you could maybe make an argument for a different player. I don't think it'd be a good one. I mean, you could call it the the Magic Johnson Award, and it would have kind of the same impact. Now, there are some other renamed awards. Defensive Player of the Year It's the Hakeem Olajuwon Trophy. That makes sense. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain Trophy for Rookie of the Year. That's not necessarily who I uh, I think of, but I guess it makes sense. Like, I mean, wh- what did Wilt average his rookie year? What I don't know, 40 points, 50 points, 1,000 points. John Havlicek trophy for sixth man of the year. George Mikan trophy for most improved player. And now there is a new award. I actually love this. A new award for clutch player of the year. It's named after Jerry West. Clutch player of the year. Now, I love that selfishly because Damian Lillard has to be one of the top contenders for this award, right? 
I mean, he'd have to, right? Like, I mean, especially the last few years, he probably would have won it. I, I am mm. interested in seeing what the criteria is going to be for that award. Like, is it going to be more of just a, a fan vote? Like, who do the fans love in the clutch time situations? Or is it going to be backed up by, like, actual stats of, like, what guys shooting percentages are in the last two minutes? And that's the real question. Because... It could be like like Kobe, who's had however many, you know, buzzer beaters or in the last five seconds of a tight game. But if you look at his actual shooting splits in the last two minutes of tight games, honestly, they're not good numbers. He's just chucking and he got a fair share of game winners because if you shoot the ball enough, sometimes it's going to go in. So where Dame, you look at the actual shooting numbers in those situations are pretty darn good. He, he doesn't always make, I mean... Historically, there's even been some bad shots in there, but like you're thinking about Damian Lillard getting a good look, it going in most of the time, especially from three. But I think that's a great point. What are we looking at? So and so had four buzzer beaters, you know, or, or two buzzer beaters this year, but really in the clutch, they shot like 22%. Is that really the clutch player of the year? Or you could have a guy who just brings his team back or ices another team out down the stretch repeatedly, but they don't have that signature kind of highlight moment, you know, a Dame Lillard tap in his watch as the buzzer goes off, but they were the most clutch player that year. Like, what do you think should go into that? I think it's probably got to be a little bit of both, right? Because, I will say, like, the percentages are really bad. Like, back in the day, you talk about Kobe. He was always down lower, and it was always Carmelo Anthony that had one of the highest percentages in the clutch. Yeah. But nobody really considered him a clutch player because he wasn't hitting maybe, like, the shot that won the game like Kobe was. So I think it's a little bit of a combo because that is – I think it's more important to actually win the game. And if you're hitting the actual game winner with, you know, one, two, zero seconds left in the game, that does matter. Like, we've seen that before. You know, Damian Lillard, perfect example of that. But I also think – that clutch, you know, it's not necessarily just the last shot. Like, it is the fourth quarter, and I think it I, for me, like, clutch, it has to be the entire fourth quarter, basically. Like, it's not even the last two minutes or some arbitrary mm. number. I think it's the last four. It's it's the last quarter of the game, but it also has to be big-time ball games when you're playing good teams. Like, you can go out and you can play, you know, a bad team, the Oklahoma City Thunder, and hit a clutch shot, but it's like, does it really matter? No, but when you go out and you do it, you know, like Dame did against the Denver Nuggets in a big-time game, that's a clutch shot. Jamal Murray hits it right back, another clutch shot. I think there's a, it's a huge difference. So for me, like it's it's going to be a combination of what I see but also stats that back it up in the fourth quarter. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm also curious to see exactly uh, how they delineate that. And if, if they even announce the criteria, we're just going to sort of see as a couple players get named, oh, this is what they're looking at. Uh, the rest of the, the trophies, I'm pretty much I'm fine with them. I mean, George Mikan for most improved. Okay. I mean, okay. John Havlicek for six man of the year. That absolutely makes sense. Wilt for rookie of the year. Sure. Because right off the bat, he had phenomenal numbers. Hakeem Olajuwon for defensive player of the year. There are a few guys you could go there. But, if, man, if you watched Hakeem in his prime, or frankly, even before his prime, even if you're talking Olajuwon in the 80s when he was still Akeem Olajuwon, I remember those days uh, before he had the dream shakedown and he had that three, four-year run of just transcendental offense. He was a defensive monster. So uh, any of these names, Stephen, that you maybe would choose someone else, are you pretty good with it? I'm pretty good with all of them. I, I am glad that Hakeem got it because I'm a big Hakeem guy. Oh. You know, g growing up, he was my favorite player. And you go look at his numbers defensively. like He was a monster. And the thing I always go back with Hakeem is, 
Jordan took those two years off to go play baseball. You know who won the NBA championship of those years? The Rockets yeah. and Hakeem. Like, that's how good that guy was. And if it wasn't for Michael Jordan, he would have won maybe another one or two championships. So I am glad he's getting some recognition there because I do love Hakeem. Yeah, shout out for Hakeem. Shout out to the the Twin Towers, man. Him and Ralph Sampson back in the mid-80s. Didn't fully work. Samson couldn't stay healthy, but uh yeah, I lo- I loved me some Akeem too. And uh I mean just his footwork. It was he cuz he he was a goalie growing up and you could really see that uh again he, like the dream shake in the mid 90s he he fully blossomed offensively, but even before that man early in his career just his defensive positioning, obviously he was huge, great shot blocker, great just positional defensive player. I'm, I I like that. I love some Elijah Wong. Yeah, Hakeem, I mean, and historically in the game of basketball, I mean, such a big part of it, Houston, Faisal, Majama, and then like you said, you know, when they battled uh, Boston in the NBA Finals in the 80s with him and Ralph Sampson, then I said in the 90s when they won the championship, so, you know, he's got a big imprint on the game of basketball, and, you know, even nowadays, you look at a lot of guys, even when they do their little post-up moves, a lot of it is what Hakeem did back yep. in the day, back in the 90s, like, he perfected it, and he's taught a lot of these players how to do it, so... Uh, it's good to see him get a little recognition, but yeah, I got no problems with anybody. Um, the one is that he didn't, they, you know, sixth man award. I think if you wanted to go, uh, you know, Havlicek is a great call because, you know, he's maybe the best of all yeah. time did it. But, you know, people that don't necessarily know if you wanted to go with the more modern guy, who would you go with? Oh, man, that is a great Detlef Shrimp award, maybe. Yeah. Do that. I like that. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I, I like Havlicek better, but you know, yeah, I, yeah. I think I think most people right now consider it's like Jamal Crawford, like he would be the guy, right? Mm. Like I always think when I how think many is he one three two three, two or three? Yeah. yeah. Like when I think of sixth man, like in the present day, the sixth man award is always like Jamal Crawford for me, which I don't, you know, I don't agree with. I like Havlicek being the better, but. I can see where Jamal Crawford could have gotten some votes there. Yeah, I like that. I, I wonder if it's just a little too soon to give to give a guy who uh, just retired. Like, last year was his final year, right? And he yeah. only played a handful of games in that year. He was essentially out of the league already. But it'd be interesting. You're talking Akeem, Jordan, Wilt, Mikan, Jerry West, and Jamal Crawford. It, like, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. The question I have now, Peter, is like, you know, LeBron obviously is going to be one of the best players of all time. At what point does he does they, do they make a new award for him, or do they replace somebody with LeBron James? Like, there's going to be have to be replacements at some point. Like, there's you know guys like LeBron are, should deserve a, an award, but are you just going to create a brand new award? Or is it just going to be LeBron? You you would have to because I mean, look, I. Jordan, Jordan's got to be the MVP award. He has to be. And, like, Bill, and Bill Russell has the Finals MVP as well. So right. Like you can't. You can't take give him that one. Well, no. I mean, LeBron's lost more Finals than he's won. He can't. He can't get that. I mean, maybe they add another one. Maybe it's the award for the MVP of the midseason tournament or mm. something when that comes in because that seems inevitable. But it does make sense. Like LeBron. I mean, the second best player of all time in my opinion anyway like he does belong somewhere but really the thing about lebron is his game is so balanced he's excellent at everything i mean excellent historically but he's not the greatest scorer of all time certainly not the best defensive player he always started uh he had his clutch moments, but he's not known as, you know, oh, 10 seconds on the clock, I'm going to hit the dagger. In fact, he took a lot of grief early in his career for finding open teammates in those situations instead of taking him, taking the shot himself. So th- that's an interesting little wrinkle because at some point, say a decade from now, 
he's got to have something, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think for me, like going forward, I think they're just going to keep adding on stuff. Where whether it's like you know whoever averages the most points per game, like that's the LeBron James, mm. you know, scoring leader, something like that, or an assist leader, something like that. I think they're going to keep adding on, but uh, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with it, and uh, it will be interesting going forward. Just if they rename awards, and of course that clutch award, man, I, I really interested to see. If they're going to put out criteria or not, because it could get a little messy if they don't. Yeah, I want to see Dame winning that bad boy. 503-417-7575. We'll go away, come back, talk some NFL on the other side. Last night's game, uh, you know, considering it was, well, not a good game, did have some big implications. We'll talk about those next. I'm Peter Sampson in for John Canzano. This is the Bald Face Truth on the BFT Radio Network. The Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back in. I am Peter Samson in for John Canzano. This is the Bald Face Truth. A little Nirvana for you on your Tuesday. It's always a good day for that, right? Man, can't believe that is classic rock now. Age sneaks up on us, doesn't it? I saw them almost 30 years ago. It's unbelievable. NFL last night, Monday night game, was between the New England Patriots and the Arizona Cardinals. And, Stephen, you and I, specifically, we talked about Kyler Murray and sort of what he needs to do to take the next step. I mean, obviously, the Cardinals, not a great team this year. They have great pieces. They have, uh, I mean, Kyler Murray is a uh, pretty darn good. He's not great, but he you can see the potential for greatness in him. Obviously, they have DeAndre Hopkins. They have some nice pieces. And we're kind of going, what does Kyler Murray need to do to take the next step? Is it coaching? Is it, frankly, his personality? You know, he doesn't necessarily always seem like a great leader. He seems like a me guy. What's going to happen in this game? What's going to happen with the Cardinals in the future? Well, we found out what's going to happen in this game in about 90 seconds. Because uh, less than 90 seconds into last night's game against the Patriots, Kyler Murray collapses with a non-contact knee injury. And you know what that means usually. When when a dude is scrambling and he goes down and no one touched him, you just go, uh-oh. Um, no surprise that uh, he was diagnosed today with a torn ACL. He is out for the year. Now, obviously, uh, a big hit for the Cardinals. Not that they really had playoff hopes anyway. Uh, they were 4-8 and eight headed into this game. But, I mean, Kyler Murray, especially as a, as a running quarterback, a scrambling quarterback, ACL, uh, you know, repair, you, you know, therapy, technology, surgery, all that, it's so much better than it was even 10, 15 years ago, let alone, say, 30 years ago when that would be the kiss of death. But still, I mean, when you're talking about Kyler Murray's future, especially coming off that big contract extension, I mean, this is really going to impact a guy. Like, this isn't Tom Brady who doesn't move in the pocket. This is Kyler Murray. It's not a good thing. Yeah, like, that's his game. His game is to run. I feel like when I watch Kyler Murray, he's more effective when he's scrambling and the play is hectic. When he's just in the pocket and the play is going right, I feel like that's when he struggles. But when he gets out and he gets going, that's when he's at his best. The question I have now, Peter, is... Because of the uncertainty, right? We don't know exactly when Kyler Murray will, Murray will be healthy enough to play next season. I always thought Cliff Kingsbury was on the chopping block, but does this buy him time? Does this give him an excuse of, 
well, you know, I didn't have Kyler. You know, it was a weird situation. DeAndre Hopkins was suspended for, you know, six games to start the year. When he came back, the offense got rolling a little bit. Then Kyler gets hurt. I didn't get a fair shake. Does this, you know, prolong Cliff Kingsbury for one more season? Or do they get rid of him? Because I think they should get rid of him. But at the same time, we've seen here, you know, in Portland with Neil O'Shea, like he just would keep booting the can down the road and make excuses. And people bought it and he kept coming back. Can Cliff Kingsbury do that again? I think it would be a mistake. But I could all see where it could happen. Yeah, I agree with you that it would be a mistake. But I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And maybe, again, being so close to the, you brought up the Trailblazers. When you started that question, my mind went, I pictured Neil O'Shea in my mind. I did. So, uh, yeah, I do think he's going to survive this for one more year. You go, look, we didn't have Hopkins for, what was that, six games? Six games, yeah. yeah. And then we lost, uh, you know, Kyler for what's going to be the last, what, four games, five games of the season. Um, you can, And they don't overlap either. So that's missing one of your big two pieces for 11 of the 17 games. Now, technically, it shouldn't matter because you were still 4-8 and eight with Kyler Murray. And whether that's Kingsbury's fault or it's Murray's fault or the truth, which I think is probably somewhere in the middle where Murray doesn't really he's not a franchise quarterback. I'm just going to say he's not. He's a very good quarterback. He's not a franchise quarterback, but you have to pay him because what are you going to do? Let him walk and Colt McCoy is going to be your quarterback. Well, I mean, that's what you're dealing with for the next four weeks anyways, Cardinal fan. But the truth is you you have to keep Kyler Murray. You had to pay him. So you have to get a coach that can bring out the best in him, even if Cliff Kingsbury, even if you're happy with him otherwise, and I don't think you necessarily should be. I don't think he's a bad coach. I don't think he's a great coach. But you have these two sort of pillars on the team. You have to find a way to get to some synergy between the coach and the quarterback position. It's clearly not working now. But I do think Cliff Kingsbury is going to keep his job. He's going to get another year. He's going to get the excuse. And and even next year. So, I mean, Kyler Murray, best case scenario, comes back what? I mean, best case, comes back midway through next season. Even though I wouldn't be surprised as a running quarterback if they just say, you know what, just take the year off, dude. We're, we got to get you back to at least be able to scramble a little bit. Whether that works or not, who knows. Uh, so, I mean, really, you can look at it where we'll just have him be the fall guy. We'll have another bad season. And then we can him. But in theory, you keep him around. You let him maybe, you know, work with Colt McCoy or if they get another quarterback on a one-year deal. You know, hey, I hear Carson Wentz might be available uh, and try to get to 500 there. But I think you're right. It would be a mistake, but I expect to see Kingsbury there next year. Yeah, because you'll be able to get someone, whether it's your boy Baker Mayfield starting quarterback for the Rams or, like you said, Carson Wentz. But, like, the Cardinals just signed Kyler Murray to a five-year, $230 million extension. So you have to make sure he's 100% healthy. It's just like, again, with the Blazers, I go back to this, with Dame last year. Like, yeah, Dame was ready to play at the end of the season, but you're not going to bring him back. There's no point of doing it. There's no point to bring Kyler Murray back early. you got to make sure that guy is 100% healthy since you've invested all this money. And we talked about it. Like, his game is all about running. So if he's not running, he's not going to be as an effective quarterback. you got to get him healthy. But does Kingsbury get that extra year? I, I think you're right. I think he does. I think it's also a mistake. Yeah. But it could be where, you know, he's just a lame duck coach next season. Cardinals have a bad year, and then they restart the next year, hopefully when Kyler is healthy. But, man, I, it, it's a bad situation in Arizona, and it fell apart so quickly. I mean, think back last year. They made the playoffs. They actually had some momentum at the start of the year. They started out, what, like 7-0, and something like that. They were really good first half of last season. It all fell apart, and now Kyler with the torn ACL. 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't see a lot of positives right now yeah. uh, down in Phoenix. Yeah, coming into this year, I expected them to contend for the NFC West with the 49ers. I, yeah, I know I'm a Rams fan. I, I was on record predicting a fallback for the Rams. Maybe not going to a 4-9, but I, I knew. I knew this team was going to regress. Injury issues, the Matthew Stafford stuff in the offseason really had me worried. But the 49ers looked good. The Cardinals looked good. Again, Kyler Murray had a terrible showing in the playoffs. But what you know, most players do is you learn from that. You get extra motivated from, frankly, being embarrassed. And he was embarrassed. The Rams embarrassed him. And you come out and you rally. You focus on your craft. But now here we are, and again, man, it's not just a bad year and it ends with him getting hurt. Again, this isn't Tom Brady. This is, Frankly, this isn't Matthew Stafford tearing an ACL. This isn't a dude that just stands there in the pocket and throws laser beams. Imagine Kyler Murray without the ability to scramble five foot ten. Yeah, on a good day. On a good day. Kyler Murray not being able to leave the pocket, having to rely only on his arm. On that contract, this could potentially be not just a bad year for the Cardinals. This could be a disaster. He's a good thrower of the football, but yeah. it's like you said, that, you know, he's better when he's on the run. He's better when he's on the move. You don't want him just staying in the pocket. That's not where he's going to be ultra successful. You got to get him outside the pocket. Got to get him moving. So, you know, it, it is imperative for the Cardinals to get this guy healthy for you know whether it's next season or the year after because you have invested all this money and. You, know, you look at other quarterback situations in the NFL. I mean, Russell Wilson is really the only bad other contract they can't get off. I'm like, you're yeah. not going to be able to get off of this guy with that contract coming off the ACL. So you got to get him right, and you got to build around him and just hope he comes back healthy enough. I hope the Cardinals enjoy Carson Wentz next season. All right, we'll go away, come back on the other side. We'll wrap up our number one. Uh, an interesting streak in the NBA just ended. I'll tell you about that. Peter Sampson in for John Canzano. Got Stephen Vaughn along for the ride. Appreciate you listening to the program. This is the Bald Face Truth on the BFT Radio Network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back in. Peter Sampson and for John Canzano, this is the Bald Face Truth on the BFT Radio Network. All good things must come to an end, right? Well, that includes a streak in the NBA. No, it's not a win streak, but it is still impressive. The Boston Celtics had a triple-digit scoring streak get snapped. They lost to the Clippers yesterday, 113-93. First time they didn't score 100 points this season. A 27-game streak of 100-plus points is pretty darn impressive. Uh, That is the uh, only the third team since the 90s to start a season with that long of a streak. Uh, The record in the 67-68 season, the Celtics kicked things off with a 35 game streak of 100 plus points. That's something that it might not sound incredibly impressive, but when you think about having to have the offensive consistency to be able to get there, because all it takes is one off night or just one night where your superstar, oh, he, he jammed a finger or he needs a night off due to rest. 
anything can go. Because, I mean, you can score 99 points and still win. You can even win pretty convincingly. 27 games in a row, Stephen, with a uh, triple-digit uh, scoring effort. Very impressive from the Celtics. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things where... You know, 100 points in the NBA doesn't seem like a lot anymore. Like the way that basketball is played with a three-point shot and the way they want to spread the court, get up and down, 100 points doesn't seem like a lot, but to do it night after night is very impressive. And the Celtics aren't really the team that I would think has that record. Like I think of them more as of a defensive team. You think back to last year, they had one of the best defenses of all time. I know they got some offensive talent, but to get 100 points every night is very yeah. impressive. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a cool little streak that they had, and uh, hopefully, you know, Portland can uh, go on that one now. Yeah, let's see that. It is surprising. So, Boston, remember, so many of us, including myself, thought that the Celtics might take a little bit of a step back, the whole Ime Udoka mess. Uh, but Joe Missoula stepped up, and they are humming, man. And Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, both of those guys have sort of uh, reached the next level. And things are only going to get better for them. Of course, they still have Marcus Smart. Robert Williams is not back yet, but he is practicing the Time Lord, their defensive anchor. Still somehow underrated, I think. And maybe it's a East Coast, West Coast thing, maybe because you don't see a lot of Celtics basketball out here. But he is so important to that roster. He's on his way back. I mean, the Celtics out East, of course, you still got to like teams like Milwaukee out East, but Boston is just incredible so far. I, unless something changes, Steven, I probably like their chances to uh, to maybe get back to the finals. Yeah, I mean, Boston's been really good. Missoula stepped right in and uh, filled in that void they had with Ime Udoka. I was on Boston last season. I, I still can't believe they didn't beat the Warriors. I thought they were the much better team. So I'm with you. I think Boston uh, should be the favorite right now in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, so much of it. It, it, it depends on health. Uh, and it depends, depends on Jason Tatum, man. He was so great in the playoffs until the final. Like, I'm not going to say he choked, but he kind of choked. Uh, but if he keeps that consistency that he needs and keeps playing team ball, that's the big knock I had against him. I mean, the sky's the limit. All right, hour number one in the books. We're going to stay in the NBA. Talk some Blazers on the other side. Samson and for Gonzano, it's the bald face truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights. In for John Canzano, here's Peter Sampson with the Bald Face Truth. Hour number two of the Bald Face Truth. Welcome in on a Tuesday. I'm Peter Sampson in for JC while he takes some time off. I got Stephen Vaughn along for the ride with me. Hope you're having a great day. We were talking Celtics on the other side. I want to keep it in the NBA. Portland Trailblazers. Played the second of two in a row against the Minnesota Timberwolves. And, uh, you know, they beat it was 118-112, uh, I believe, was the final of game one. This one last night, not even close. 133-112 the final. You talk about defense optional. I felt that about the game Saturday. Even more so last night. And uh, Damian Lillard was on a heater last night man he was absolutely unconscious 38 points 11 made threes tied his career high in made threes which is the trailblazers franchise record now here's where it gets interesting i think it's clay thompson holds the nba record with 14 made threes damian lillard did not play in the fourth quarter of this game he played 29 minutes and 22 seconds he was 11 to 17 from three, 13 to 21 overall, 38 points. Could have set a career high, could have set a franchise record. Could maybe 
have tied or set the NBA record for made threes in a game, did not play the fourth quarter. And I get it. It wasn't a close game. I don't even really blame Chauncey Billups for this. I blame the Timberwolves for being bad because it couldn't keep it close. It's like that time. Remember when Clay Thompson had 60 points in 28 minutes, 29 minutes, and they didn't play the fourth quarter because I don't remember who the opponent was. It might have been the Timberwolves. I don't think it was. It was like Charlotte or something. But whoever the opponent was, was so awful that they were just going to rest Clay. You know what I mean? 60 points in 29 minutes, not even going to play the fourth. He literally could have. He wasn't going to reach Wilt, but he could have topped Kobe's 81. So I don't really blame Chauncey as much as I blame uh, <laughs> Aunt Edwards and gang. Rudy Gobert and gang, D'Angelo Russell and the fellas. But it would have been nice to see Dame maybe get a chance to get in there. And I like the way Chauncey handled it. He said, look, man, yeah, that would have been nice. But you know what else is nice? Him getting rest. And maybe if he was going for a career high or something, he could have got out there for a couple minutes. But 38, I mean, he scored 38 a million times. But Dame Lillard on a heater. Yeah, and it was nice to see, you know, Dame... He had missed a couple games with that calf injury for the second time this year, but he looks like he's 100% healthy, which is great going forward. Uh, you know, the Blazers' offense, I've been a little critical of their offense lately. They, you know, I felt like all year they had kind of struggled a little bit offensively, but the last few games uh, they've really been breaking out. Uh, per cleaning the glass, uh, Peter, Trailblazers have the top offensive rating in the NBA over the past two weeks. So you know they were right middle of the pack, right around 14, 15 for most of the year. Last couple weeks with Dane coming back, no surprise. They're number one right now in the NBA. Now can they get the defense back up? They're still 24, 25, right until the bottom of the defensive side, and that's going to win you ball games in the playoffs. But it is nice to see that the Blazers still have that offense when they need it. Um, and you know it's a completely different game when you get to the playoffs. You got to play defense, but at least you know we know that Chauncey can get the offensive side going. And the Blazers are still elite on that side. So, I, you know, I was excited about that. But, you know, is it really that big of a deal? Like, I understand. Okay, here, here's my take on this, Peter. Like, to take him out of the game. Yeah. I'm glad that they did. Because if Dame stays in the game and he just starts chucking up terrible three-pointers, like, that's not basketball. Like, it's it's not even fun for me to, like, watch that and say, oh, he set the record. But, yeah, he's just chucking up threes. Like, that Clay Thompson game you talked about where he scored 60, it was against the Pacers. Like, that was all in rhythm. Like, yes, they were looking for him. Yes, they were running plays for him. I think he him. held the ball for, like, a total of eight seconds in yeah, that game. like, they were running plays for him, but it was all in rhythm of basketball where Dame, you could even see when in the second half he was started chucking up some deep threes. I don't like when the game gets out of hand and it's more just rat ball and we're playing 24-hour fitness style. Like, that's just not my thing when I'm watching basketball. So I'm glad that Chauncey took him out. Uh, but, again, bottom line, good to see Dame back and healthy and hitting threes. Yeah, to me it depends on the context uh, of which he's shooting. Like, if he's going in and some players will do this, man, especially when you see guys like uh, like one uh, assist shy of a triple-double or something like that, they're, they're not playing properly. They're stat chasing. Dame I could see, you know, get in the rhythm. If you make one, you take another one, and then you try to bring the hammer with the 35-footer, which he does shoot really well. So I don't want to see him just 
jacking it up like crazy. But I mean, like 11 for 17, man, you might as well go 22 for 34. I mean, that, it doesn't really get a lot more efficient than that. But you're right. I wouldn't want to see him go out there and go, say, 0 for 2 or 0 for 3 and then continue to shoot them from there. That's the difference to me. I think you're right on when you talked about you blame the Timberwolves for this one. They they were not very good in this game. They weren't competitive. And it was surprising me. You, know, you asked me before the game, like, who do I like? I liked Minnesota. And you you got to give Portland some credit coming back playing the playing the same team back to back nights. That's always difficult. It shows you know we talked about it shows how you can see different coaching adjustments. Chauncey made some adjustments. The Blazers hit some shots. It was nice to see him get a, another good win over another good team that should be you know in the playoff race just like Portland. Yeah, with without a doubt. And I mean you you look at some of the the other performances here. Uh, Anthony Simons uh, fairly quiet night. I mean he didn't shoot. Great. He, you know, he shot 39%, 5 to 13, 12 points. Jeremy Grant, after a little bit of a lull, you couldn't even say he's in a slump per se, but uh, Jeremy Grant, 24 points, uh, 7 of 12. He actually, uh, as far as the starters go for Portland, had the uh, the highest offensive rating in this game. Josh Hart had a typical Josh Hart game, 8.7 boards, uh, a couple of assists. And we got another good use of Nurkic game here. He was on the perimeter defending space. A lot less, which helps 14 points, 16 boards. Uh, Shaden Sharp in garbage time uh, gathered uh, 14 points. But I think going into the fourth quarter, he only had four points, I think, maybe five. So uh, he got some looks up uh, while the game was completely out of hand. Where I was most impressed was Justice Winslow. Look, Winslow started the season just he, he fit the role like a glove. I know he's dealt with injury and all that stuff, but he's really, his performance has sagged off last night, nine points, 10 assists, six boards, 30 minutes. Some of that again was in garbage time, but it was great to see justice Winslow sort of playing that role that he was playing at the beginning of the season. Because you think if you're the, the, the Portland trailblazers, or you're watching this team, you go, man, they really found something here. A guy that can literally can play pinch minutes at the five if he has to. He could bring the ball up the court. He can sort of do whatever's asked of him. He'd stopped doing that. He'd frankly been a net negative on the court for the last handful of weeks. It was good to see a good performance out of him. Yeah, he had been really bad, and it wasn't just offensively. Like he was, he's never been known as being a great offensive player. No. But defensively, he has been solid all year. But the last few games, last five, ten games specifically, he hasn't been very good defensively either. And so it was nice to see Justice Winslow get going a little bit. Because they need him off the bench. Like, he is an important bench piece because this Blazer team isn't deep. And Shane Sharp has really fallen off. Last 12 games, Peter, Shane Sharp shooting 12% from three-point range. He's down to 32% for the season. Like, yeah, he's not that bad. It's going to get back up at some point. But he seems like he's hitting the rookie wall, only shooting 36% in that stretch, six points a game. So the Blazers do need some type of punch off the bench. That's why it's going to be important when GP2 comes back. But they need some type of offensive threat. And I know Justice Winslow isn't a guy that is going to carry the team, but he showed like he'd last night, 10 assists, scored a couple buckets, made a couple nice cuts. Like that's what he can do. And the Blazers really do need that off the bench yeah. because right now that bench unit isn't great. It's it's about Drew Eubanks getting a couple dunks, trying to watch for making a couple plays. And that's about it right now. So if they can get Justice going back like he was the first five, eight games of the season, that would be huge for Portland. Yeah, I think a big part, you mentioned Sharp and his uh, shooting. Uh, part of it, 
to me, it's obviously like, again, you see this with rookie players after they've played, say, oh, maybe 18, 20 games. They do hit that wall. Part of it, don't forget, he he had that minor fracture in his finger. And it's one of those things where they go, look, I mean, just tape it up. He's going to be able to play. I think, I don't know, but I think just the way that the shooting struggles have coincided with that really brief announcement, because he didn't really miss any time. I think he missed one game. I, I wonder if that's affecting his outside outside I'll, shot. Yeah, it might be. I want to ask you this about Shane Sharp, mm. because the Blazers obviously want to win, and they're trying to make the playoffs. How long can you play a 19-year-old who has struggled defensively, now he's not making shots, how much longer can you play him 16, 20 minutes a night on a team that's contending because Chauncey Billups has done that. But I get the sense that Chauncey, as soon as he thinks, okay, Shane Sharp's not helping, like he's going to cut those minutes down to basically zero. He's going to throw out someone else that can do it. How much longer is Shane Sharp in the rotation if he continues to struggle like this? I mean, that's really the question because at a certain point, look, player development is nice, especially with someone who has a ceiling as absurdly high as Shaden Sharp does. But if he's in, and I think we all understand he's not really going to contribute defensively right now. We just accept that it is what it is. So he damn well better score the basketball when he gets opportunities. And they're already putting him in a position where he can't really hurt him too much. He's in the dunker spot a lot, hit the baseline three. But he's he, the shooting does need to get better. I just looked it up here on Basketball Reference. So uh, before the uh, the finger injury, forty four percent from three, and uh, in eleven games, and in the it looks like fourteen games since, twenty six percent from three. So again, correlation is not causation, but it lines up almost to a T with that finger fracture. So you hope maybe that'll come back. It also just might be one of those things that's going to hurt until you don't play basketball for three weeks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Would it be beneficial for Portland when GP2 comes back? You know, the reports. We can't, it's hard to trust these things. Who but knows? if GP2 comes back, you know, in a couple of weeks, would it be smart to maybe just rest Shaden Sharp a little bit, try to get as healthy as you can, uh, just so you can continue playing him? Because I do think he's important to this roster and they need his scoring punch off the bench. But if he, like you said, if he's not scoring the basketball, it's going to be hard to put that guy out there because defensively he has been really, uh, really bad. Last yeah. 15 games or so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the, we're, the Blazers aren't the Pistons. You can't necessarily throw them out there for 30 developmental minutes a night. Like, you got to win games. And, you know, even though you're not really putting the ball in his hands a lot, if he's shooting 40% from three, you're good. You're good. Even if it's just as an outlet valve. And, of course, he gives you one highlight move uh, per game. Last night, it was... <laughs> It was the beautiful up and under, man. Jordan-esque, by the way. In fact, the Blazers yeah. had the tweet. They, they started calling them Maple Jordan, which I love. I that saw nickname. that Warrior fans got mad about that because uh, I guess that's Andrew Wiggins' nickname, too. Well, sorry, Whatever. Andrew, but we're taking that. Yeah, we're taking that. We're I mean, taking and, that. But, and it's those plays, Peter, that, like, it shows, like, okay, like you want to play this guy. Like, it's hard mm-hmm. to not play a guy with that kind of talent, that time of athleticism. But he's got to produce. But he has to produce because yeah. the Blazers are trying to win. Like, yeah. there's no doubt about it. They're not tanking. They are trying to win. You can't be throwing out a 19-year-old out there for 20 minutes if he's not going to produce. I wouldn't hate, and again, we're speculating on the outside. Again, the, the correlation, it lines up with the fractured finger perfectly. perfectly. I mean, perfectly. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the rookie wall. It's probably a combination of the two. But when GP2 comes back, assuming he's he does come back, if you can get away, if it's to the point where he's been playing with it, and you can just give him a week off, and then it's going to be better, I say go ahead and do that. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily maybe you know give him four weeks off. But you do want to give him an opportunity to get better and get to a point where he can help the team again because at a certain point, again, the Blazers 15 and 12, they're winning games. Again, finally, you know, they're just a a last-second three away from a five-game winning streak. 
He's got to produce. You got to win games. It, the schedule has led up a little bit, but still, you ha- you have to ensure that you're grabbing these winnable games while you can. So it's an interesting point. Uh, is he going to be able to hold on to a spot? How long of a leash is he going to have? And we've seen that Chauncey, if he doesn't have it, we've seen that Chauncey, he'll pull the leash. He, he'll give Shaden basically no minutes in the second half of a lot of these games. The good thing for Portland is this is about as healthy as it's been all season long. You, mm. They just released an uh, injury report, Trailblazers PR did. Of course, Greg Brown's out, Nasir Little, Gary Payne, all out. But then it's probable Drew Eubanks, Josh Hart, and that's it. So, you know, if you're Portland, Keon Johnson, fully back, you have Jabari Walker, he's there. I think if I think once you said, like, if GP2 comes back relatively soon, I think you can give Shane Sharp a little bit of time off. Hopefully get healthy if that is the reason. Because you got guys like Keon Johnson, Jabari Walker on the bench, Trent Wofford. They can all fill those type of minutes. And then you had GP2 as well. Fill those minutes that Shane Sharp has been playing. Get him ready to go maybe for the second half of the season and hope it goes from there because, you know, he has shown the ability to win ball games for Portland. Yeah. Like early in the season, Portland would not have won some of those games without Shane Sharp. So I do think he's super important, uh, not only for the development of the future of this Blazer team, but this season as well. Yeah, it's it's a real in- interesting balancing act that uh, that Chauncey Billups has to manage here. It's only going to get tougher when GP2 comes back, assuming he does actually come back. Of course, the report in The Athletic uh, yesterday, day before yesterday, that he's targeting a uh, return within one to two weeks uh, remains to be seen. I'm not necessarily going to go with that. I probably trust that a lot more than official uh, Blazers announcements because that's a leak. That's someone on the inside, you know, sending that out and giving that to Shams. But, of course, we've seen, oh, okay, ready for the regular season. Okay, he'll be ready uh, two weeks after that. Okay, it's going to be November 15th. Okay, it's going to be December 1st. And now here we are. We're coming up on Christmas in two weeks. Uh, So I'll believe it when I see it, but hopefully soon. And when that does happen, whenever it is there's going to be just a little bit more crowding i mean look you know sharp part of it is he's almost had to go because of course keon johnson's been hurt for a while he's been dealing with some stuff uh there's there's depth there but when everyone's hurt gp2 keon like at a certain point it's just well this kid's gotta play uh but i wouldn't be surprised to see him maybe get a couple games off see if he can get that touch back i'll take your thoughts on that 503-417-7575 you can tweet at me at peter sampson s-a-m-p-s-o-n we'll keep it going on the other side this is the bald face truth on the bft radio network to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back in. Peter Sampson in for JC. Got Stephen Vaughn along with me here. So on Sunday, the Atlanta Hawks beat the Bulls in overtime. 123-122 is the final. Okay, big whoop, right? But uh, Trey Young was fined twenty-five grand for celebrating at the end of that game. He fired the ball into the crowd. Now, okay, he gets fined 25 Gs, which, by the way, to you or me, it's like getting fined four bucks. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it's like you had to buy two lattes today. You get one, you had to pay for two. It's a bummer. Not a big deal. Young reacted to the fine by tweeting, sorry to the Hawks fans who got a chance to touch the game-winning ball. 
Didn't know I couldn't do that. Can't celebrate bleep anymore. So Atlanta moves to 14 and 13. They end a three-game losing streak. They beat the Bulls in overtime. Trey Young heaves the ball into the crowd and gets fined 25 grand. Now, this is interesting for a few reasons. First of all, it's just, do we agree with that? Is is 25 grand too much? Is it not enough? You shouldn't be throwing the ball like that. I mean, it's just a sportsmanship thing. I don't necessarily care when they do it, but I understand why rules are in place that don't allow you to do that. But also, Trey Young, he's starting to get a little bit of a rep, man. And I know, you know, he was dancing on the logo at MSG and things like that. And I understand that. But with the beef going on with Nate McMillan, and now he's firing the ball in the stands, and he's all cranky that he's getting fanned for that or fined for that. Like, what's going on with Trey Young? Is he embracing sort of the uh, the villain mentality in the NBA? There's a lot to unpack here. Is Steven. he just is he just a diva? Like, is that just what he is? It might be what it is. It might be because it seems like he's complaining about really weird things, right? The whole the whole drama with him and Nate McMillan. He was getting mad at reporters for asking him fair questions, like, "Why were you not at the arena?" This is what we heard. Is that true? And then he was getting mad at the media for that. Now he's firing balls into the crowd. Like, if you don't understand why you can't fire a basketball into the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's on you. Like, to be mad about that is weird. So, like, I don't know. It seems very diva-ish of Trey Young to do this. And I don't I don't agree with Trey Young at all. Like, I, you can't be firing basketballs in the crowd, whether it's a celebration or not. Um, you know, it's great to celebrate. I don't have a problem with celebrating, but that's just not something you can do. So, I don't know, man. I, it does seem like Trey Young, th- some of the shine is wearing off on him a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, he had that great series in the playoffs against New York, got to the Eastern Conference Finals, but it's been downhill since then. I don't know how good he necessarily is. He's a great numbers guy, but how much does that translate to winning on the basketball court still remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, that's the real question, right? And and I'll be honest, I have been shocked by how good Trey Young has been in the NBA. I, I, I'll be honest, I was wrong. I thought he was going to be a complete bust, just an absolute bust. Next, Jimmer Fredette. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah, not quite. Not even close, actually. He's a very, very good scorer, but... How much has that translated to team success? Well, a little bit, a little bit. But, you know, when you're talking to dude who averages, you know, 29, 28, 27 points a game, is it enough? It doesn't seem to. So I do wonder how much, you know, Trey's looking for his own shot. And uh, regardless of the outcome uh, for his team, because because for someone who's just supposedly one of the just the best three-point shooters in the NBA, right? Well, you're shooting 32, 36, 34 38%. Dude is shooting 28.5% this season, which that tells me, bro, you're just hunting shots. You're jacking up shots. Like, no one can deny that if Trey Young gets his feet set and it has a good look, it's as likely to go in for him as it is for literally anyone in the NBA. Like, we're even talking Steph. So if you're shooting 28%, sh- sure, some of that's a slump, but, you know, what about 34%, 36%, 32%? I wonder about shot selection, shot quality, finding the open guy, jacking up a three and double coverage instead of finding an open dude. Like maybe there's a reason John Collins constantly is rumored to want out of there, even though they paid him. I mean, I I really wonder about Trey Young. Yeah. That's the thing is, you know, to be a, to be a good shooter, but only shoot 28%. That that means you're not a good shooter. But but like, (laughs) but like, I agree with you. Like, 
if you're choosing guys in the NBA to give a wide open three to, Trey Young's at the top of the list. Like you don't want him to shoot the basketball if you're going against him. Like you think that's going in. So it is weird. Like it, I, I totally agree with you. He's got to be a little more unselfish. I kind of think he plays a selfish type of basketball. You know, we've seen guys chase stats. We you know, Russell Westbrook, he averages you know a bunch of assists every single season. But I wouldn't say he's an unselfish player. I think it's more. You know, uh, he does, he's a very, you know, selfish player when he plays, not unselfish. I kind of compare, you know, Anthony Simon, same type of thing. He'll have games where he goes for, you know, decent amount of assists, but I think he doesn't necessarily make the correct play all the time. I think that's where Trey Young's falling right now. And you hope that he gets out of that trap because, you know, he can be a very talented player, one of the best shooters in the in the league. And he has good players around him. John J. Murray is hurt right now, but you talk about John Collins. Like, this is the team that got to the Eastern Conference Finals, thought they could build off that, hasn't worked. And you, you just hope that, you know, Trey figures it out because right now uh, it seems to be going, you know, spiraling downward quickly uh, when it wasn't, when it doesn't have to over just silly things that Trey can just, you know, fix very easily. Yeah. Fifth year in the NBA is only 24 years old and uh, there is time. There is time to maybe set some better habits. I wonder if it's going to happen. I wonder if Nate McMillan is going to be coaching this team next season or if uh you know Trey Young is going to allegedly get another coach fired at a certain point I mean you know you go hey five years on our third coach now if you're the superstar I mean whether you directly ask for it or again you just beefed with the coach enough that the ownership and management felt the need to make a change that does come down on you and that sticks with you you know that stuck with Magic Johnson his entire career. Trey Young, you're great. You're no Magic Johnson. People still talked about Magic Johnson being a being a coach killer for what he did to Paul Westhead. It lasts that long. So you hate to see it happen. He's a unique talent. Again, he's a talent that I didn't think was going to translate at the NBA, and he has. And good for him for that. But I would like to see more success at the team level. I would like to see a little less uh, nonsense. I just... What are you doing? What are you do? I mean, it's as simple as that. What are you doing, so man? Do you, do you think he should be fine for chucking the ball up in the crowd, or do you think that's an okay celebration? Uh, I think he should be fine. You can't do that. I mean, look, you can't do anything with the crowd in the NBA. I understand the emotion. I like emotion. I like celebrations. But you can't risk hitting some little kid that's not paying attention and busting his nose. You just can't do that. That's why that rule's in place. It's not offensive that you threw a ball. I understand that. Some people probably got fired up. The NBA is not going to take the risk if you just bashing a kid in the face or some lady, you know, getting her tooth chipped. You just can't do it. Yeah, I'm not offended by it for sure. Like, I'm with you. Like, it's it's funny. Like, I think it's funny that he does it, but, like, you cannot be doing it. You got to be smarter than that. And if you don't understand, like like you said, it's just it's a weird spot for Trey Young, man. Just, just celebrate on the court with the dudes and, uh, you know, be happy with the win because, you know, that um, that Eastern Conference, that their, their division, I can't think of what it is, the South – I yeah. believe they're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that division is wide open with the Heat struggling this season. Atlanta has a chance to really you know get to that you know three four seed if the, if they can really start playing well. Trey Young plays well. Dejounte comes back, but I don't have a lot of trust in them. I don't have a lot of trust in Trey Young right now. Yeah, yeah. Right now they're you know fourteen and fourteen. They're seventh in the Eastern Conference. Uh, I mean multiple challenges here. I mean obviously John Collins is uh, going to miss. Uh, a little bit more time. It was a minimum of two weeks. That was at the beginning of the month, I, I think, that he uh, he injured his ankle. Of course, Clint Capella, 
uh, just missed their last game against Memphis. He's dealing with a sore Achilles. Uh, and you mentioned DeJounte Murray is out as well. He's going to miss at least another week. Uh, he's been out about a week, and he's going to miss at least another one with uh, left ankle as well. So, Trey, I mean, you should be happy because you're going to get to jack up a lot of shots for the next week to two weeks. But, man, you can, quote, celebrate bleep anymore. You can do it in a variety of ways, a multitude of ways, a plethora of ways. You just can't fire stuff out into the crowd. You can't do it. Again, it's not offensive. You're not a bad guy for doing it. You just got to know better. And don't get upset when you get fined for doing that. I guarantee you've been told that. Hey, don't jerk with the crowd. If someone is being inappropriate and offensive to you, tell security. That's how you handle that. I guarantee every NBA player has been told that. Multitude of times. Probably the beginning of every season. And they might have a refresher at the All-Star break. Don't mess with the crowd. If someone's inappropriate, tell security and we'll kick them out. But you can't throw the ball. And even worse, you can't complain about it. In fact, Trey, just stop complaining in general. I don't know what your deal is, man. Maybe you're just grumpy. Maybe you miss DeJounte. Maybe that's what it is. Things will get better. Just ball out. Play team ball. Try to win some games. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You know, it's that time of the year. Peter Sampson in for Kanzana. It's that time of the year where everyone's playing Christmas music. I'm not going to do it. You get the normal bump music. I'm not going to play Christmas music. But it is that time. I like to, uh, you know, I have, I have my uh, various music uh, music stations that I listen to. They're all playing Christmas tunes. And uh, it's not necessarily my thing. There's some good stuff, though, out there. You know. Like, is, is there a Christmas song? That you really enjoy, Stephen Vaughn. Do you have a Christmas song that you dig? Um, not not one in particular, but I will say I do like I do like a lot of the older stuff. Yeah, and any of the newer things that they come out, I don't think are very good. It is amazing though that a lot of these songs came out like the fifties and sixties, still mm-hmm. stand up today. Like mm-hmm. that's how you know it's a really a hit. So I don't have like one or two that I really love. I do like listening to Christmas music. Uh, my oldest likes to listen to Christmas music as well. So like we'll listen in the car, but uh. No, I don't really have one in particular that I love. But you're li- you're you're listening to like maybe some Sinatra or Bing Crosby, yeah. that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, that kind of Dean stuff. Martin. Like he'll ask me like, when was this song made? Because he can tell yeah. it's old, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is in the '50s. He's like, wow. Like, and I'm like, think about that. <laughs> like, 70 years old yeah. is when this song came out, and it's still popular today. Like that is that's amazing. It makes sense. What is a good Christmas song? Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. Loki, uh, I'll tell you. Here's a little tip for you. If you like the old stuff or your kid likes the old stuff, but you can get a modern uh, a modern recording of that, believe it or not, and you're going to think I'm joking and you're going to think it's terrible, but it's not. It's wonderful. Scott Weiland, RIP, the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots, that guy, released a Christmas album in 2011, and it's... It's old songs, White Christmas, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, Winter Wonderland. You know what I'm saying? Those, And it's it's not done in like a new style. It's that classic, uh, mellow, sort of jazz-inflected uh, style. It is fan 
freaking-tastic. Like, it shouldn't be as good as it is. And, I, I mean, I, I, you know, Scott Weiland was a great singer. I've seen Stone Temple Pilots. They were great. I saw I saw them. This was, it was probably 2000. It might have been 2001. And it was a big controversy. It was uh, a, a rock station here, uh, KUFO. Which is part of the 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 flagship station here, 750 the game. It's part of that cluster with Alpha Media here, parent company, and uh, they were bringing. It was this huge like metal festival, Tattoo the Earth. It was called, and it was bands like like Slayer, Slipknot was brand new then. They were there, Sepultura. You know what I mean? It was like that kind of music. He goes, just brutal stuff. And headlining the show for some reason was Stone Temple Pilots. And I think it was a metal festival, and they just attached STP to it for the radio station promotion stuff. And if you're not familiar, I mean, Scott Weiland, well, obviously had drug problems. That's why he's dead. And uh, it's nothing to make light of. You know, he's a father, husband. Made music that a lot of us enjoy. And some DJ was talking bleep. Like, they're promoting this show. Like, brought to you by the radio station. And they're talking a bunch of junk about Scott Weiland being being an addict. Not really something to make light of. Not really something to be flippant about. It's not like he didn't know that he was struggling with this stuff. He tried. And word got back to him, like, hey, we're playing this this show that you guys are promoting, and you're ripping on me. And so he threatened to pull out of the show. Just fine. I'm not going to do it. Screw you. And it was a big brouhaha for a while. And uh, ultimately, they did play the show. And it was so funny because you have all these just super, you know, new metal, just brutal bands. I mean, brutal in a good way, you know. Seven Dust was there. All these S bands, Slayer, Slipknot, Seven Dust, Sepultura. Uh, and then STP, had, they come out and they have their little itty bitty amps, their little boutique amps playing there, you know, just alt pop. They absolutely slayed that show. It was like at Portland Meadows or something like that. I can barely remember. I mean, just wiped the floor with all these absolutely just hard metal bands just playing their little pop rock music. And uh, why, uh, man, I, I saw the appeal with Scott Weiland. That dude was an amazing front man. Uh, I mean, just incredible. He just commanded a crowd. All that being said, when I found out about this Christmas album, I said, yeah, right. It's really, really good. He had some great pipes towards the end. I think he abused his uh, his voice a little. Uh, I know towards the end I've seen some stuff that doesn't sound so great, but it's really good. So Stephen, I I highly recommend it. It's the it's the old stuff, all the stuff that again was written in the you know the 40s, 50s. A uh, little bit of a modern take, but it's still done. It's done true to uh, the area that it was written in. And I appreciate that because uh, you know, as much as I just said how much I like listening to Christmas music, I don't mind it. By the end, you know, if you listen to it all month of December, you get burned out by the end. Yeah. You, you hear the same things over and over. It's like, all right, I've heard this song enough. So, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely give that a shot. I'm burned out already, to be <laughs> honest, man. It's, it, it, I, and I get 
you know, why stations will do it. I get why everyone does it, but it's just, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. And it gets to the point, I understand, we have Thanksgiving, you're still full of turkey, and you got to fire that tree up and turn on some, uh, some uh, uh, you know, Bing Crosby or whatever it is that you're listening well, to. Well, when's, when's time, Peter? Because I feel like it is. I feel like Thanksgiving is the official time where you can bust out Chris's music uh, but I mean, when, when is time for uh, Christmas music then? Yeah, I'm I'm gonna say personally, and I'm you may you know differ in opinion. I'm gonna say within ten days of Christmas. That's when I'm doing it. But I think Thanksgiving makes sense. But I think that's part of the more of the overarching trend of we keep uh, we keep rushing to you know celebrate the holidays. You know what I mean? Like it used to be. Oh, it's December Christmas season. At least as a kid, it was like Christmas break, and that was Christmas season. Then it's December 1st, and then it's Thanksgiving. And then at a certain point, man, it's like post-Halloween, November 1st. I'm putting up the Christmas lights, baby. I had a neighbor that did that. It was November 1st. Happy Halloween, putting the lights up. That's early. That's a little early for me. Yeah. I think December is fine, but Thanksgiving is the official start for me. And that's fair. That's not where I land, but I totally, like, it makes sense, right? We're in the holiday season but anyway uh if you haven't heard that record i don't even remember what it's called the most wonderful time of the year by scott wyland way better than it has any business being but uh what do you dig 503-417-7575 you can let me know on twitter as well at peter sampson s-a-m-p-s-o-n uh let's go to gresham mac in gresham what's on your mind mac hey how's it going good yeah, just heard you guys talking about uh, Christmas albums, and there are two or three I thought I'd share with you that are kind of my go-to. Yeah, might be out of the the normal. Uh, yeah, what do you got? Uh, Bare Naked Ladies Christmas album is uh, is better than it has any business being. Okay. BB um, uh, King, uh, you like uh, the blues? And then um, for a change of uh, pace from the cold winters here uh, in Portland, Jimmy Buffett. There you go. All right, Mac and Gresham, appreciate the phone call. You know what's weird? Here it is, December 13th, 2022. This is my second day of this week guest hosting for John Canzano. That is the second straight show that the bare naked ladies have come up, and I have not brought them up either time. That, that was my first thought, too. It was like, oh, I just mentioned them yesterday for no reason, just randomly. I don't know why they're in my mind either. But I'm yeah. going to have to start working that in, bringing up the – because I used to, on my weekend show, yeah. one of my million weekend shows, my first weekend show, uh, I used to bring up uh, the fact that Kevin Garnett once got down on all fours and barked like a dog at Jared Bayless mid-game. I would bring, I would work that into every single show somehow. I might have to start bringing up the bare naked lady, or is BNL as they're known because they are that iconic and institutional. That's BNL. right. Yeah, respect their name, Peter. That, that's gonna be your new bit. I'm excited. That's about right. It. BNL. They're triple platinum. Are you Samson? Yeah, I didn't freaking think so. So he brings up BNL's Christmas record. I did like that he said it's better than it should be. Like it's fair. Yeah, and that's, that's fair. That's like, fair. Like we all understand what that means. Like all right, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'll ch- I like I'm not even being flippant. I'll check that out. But I totally get what he means by that. And BB uh, King, I feel like I might have the BB King Christmas record. I look, I have a lot of vinyl that uh, I have obtained from our sister station, Kink, Kink FM. Here's the thing. I've talked about it on the air. We did this huge remodel here, and they were getting rid of 
like thousands of records, and they were first come, first serve. Well, guess who showed up first and made made sure to show up first? I was walking by that pile every 45 minutes for like two weeks. What's in here now? What's in here now? Got a lot of stuff. In that stuff was uh, a pretty good chunk of B.B. King. I feel like that Christmas record might be in there. I'm not sure. I definitely got a bunch of Beatles, a bunch of Lennon, uh, Harrison and McCartney solo stuff. Um, yeah, a lot of good stuff. I'll have to dig it and see if I have that B.B. King. And what was the last one he mentioned? It was uh, it was the Bare Naked Ladies. It was B.B. King. And there was one other one. Oh, it was, it was uh, Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. That's right. Uh, I'll pass it. Yeah, Jim, Jimmy Jimmy Buffett is like Jimmy Buffett. It's like <laughs> that's just an album. I'm just I'm gonna have to trust him. I'm gonna trust Mac on that one. So you know yeah. what? Yeah, it's it's fine. It's Jimmy fine. Jimmy Buffett's like Panda Express. I see the appeal. It's not for me. You know what I mean? Like I'm not. I wouldn't want to take it away from anyone else. But I'm not gonna go there. I, there, I'm going to go somewhere else. I do love Panda Express, though. So. <laughs> well, you know what? That's fair. It's not for me. I'm, I, I don't want to take that away from anyone, well, thank including you. you but yeah. uh, I'm going to go ahead and pass on that. But I will check out the uh, the Bare Naked Ladies Christmas. Record. No, that, that that is a good that's a good uh, good analogy there on that one because it, it's just not for everybody, right? Yeah. Like that's and that's okay. It's not for everybody, but uh, yeah, it may be great, and I just will never know. I'll just never know. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. What is a good Christmas record? Of course, I am on Twitter at Peter Sampson S A M P S O N. We'll go away. Come back. More sports talk on the other side. I'm in for John Canzano. This is the Bald Face Truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on seven fifty. The game. Welcome back in. Peter Samson in for John Canzano. It's a bald-faced truth on a Tuesday. Talking Christmas music. A lot of talk during the break. Steven Eugene was trying to hook me up. Apparently there's a, uh, a, a reissue of that Scott Weiland uh, Christmas record, uh, which now I do see a deluxe version of the record. just came out last month, and it has uh, Happy Christmas War is Over. The John and Yoko song, which I love. So I'm trying to get myself a copy of that. Rachel's in on Twitter. She enjoys some Dean Martin and Elvis Presley Christmas music. Look, as a big Elvis guy, or at least Elvis until about 1959 guy, uh, I've had the, uh, I think there are two uh, Elvis Christmas records from that era. And I'm sure there are some in the, you know, the 70s that I missed. And yeah, Dean Martin, man. I know everyone kind of clowns Dean Martin, you know, oh, he rode Sinatra's coat. Dean Martin was the man, and not just because of the, uh, you know, the roasts or Martin and Lewis or the sheer quantities of liquor that that dude could put down in public. Dean Martin was smooth. I'll tell you, anytime I'm making, uh, you know, I'll do like a big uh, Sunday sauce, you know what I mean, like a nice meaty red sauce, I have a playlist, and uh, Dean Martin is strongly represented on that list, uh, David's in. David in Vancouver. Annie Lennox Christmas Wonderland is great. Uh, I believe that. 
Any Lennox is one of those artists that I really enjoy, and yet I own nothing by her. But anytime I hear Annie Lennox, I'm like, oh, hell yeah, man. I like the Arrhythmics, but I never actually uh, uh, break it out on my own. You know what I mean? 503-417-7575. Let's go to Junction City. Tom is in Junction City. What's up, Tom? Hey, how are you now? Good. Hey, I've got one for you. Probably yeah. haven't heard of this one before. Not a lot of people have. REO Speedwagon, Not So Silent Night. Okay, a little REO. Appreciate the phone call, Tom. I'll, I'll try to find that. REO, that's like a just a touch before my generation. Like, I grew up with it, but I was really young. Uh, I'll look for that. REO, they're always with me. They're always lumped in with, like, a, like sticks, you know, and... Uh, not Kansas so much. Who, who am I trying to think of? Sticks, REO, you know that era, late 70s, early 80s rock. I will check that out. I did not know. Like, apparently that's the thing that a lot of artists do is they break out the Christmas record to try to just notch up some sales. Should we do that, Steven? Should we make a Christmas record here and try to just bump the ratings a little bit? I think we should, yeah. I'm looking this up. Yeah, REO uh, got this album right here, Christmas album. What year did that come out? I'm going to guess 83. Oh, I can't find it. Hold on. I I, I, started, I started searching something else. Hold on. Oh, yeah. No worries, man. Uh, but uh, REO to me, that's, uh, I don't know. Rock and roll in that era is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because you're like post-punk. There's a lot of great stuff going on. And commercially on the big level, you know, big corporate rock kind of hit a lull there for a while. And REO was part of that. They're great musicians, though. And I, I think they're still kicking around in, in one form or another uh, but, uh, I remember having, uh, speaking of bands like that, uh, being in kindergarten, 1983, and I had the sticks record Kilroy was here and it's awful. Like, even if you're a sticks fan, that record's awful. Right. And, uh, I remember taking it to kindergarten for show and tell, and it's like a concept album about rock and roll, like saving the world in an apocalyptic future. Basically, uh, that's a long way of saying these guys were on Coke. Allegedly. And uh, I remember playing that. Oh, and by the way, I went to Catholic school. So <laughs> I was playing that. And the other the other album I took, I remember in first grade, I took a record for show and tell. And this is funny. So you understand. I'm in Catholic school, right? Like, I, like we go to mass and then we do show and tell. And I have uh, uh, Van Halen, 1984. And I have the tape. I take it for show and tell. And... Uh, <laughs> I swear this was innocent. The cover of that album is a baby angel smoking cigarettes, like, and sneaking out the window and, like, blowing the smoke out, like, not getting caught. And I was allowed to play one track. You know what I played. You know what I played for my nun teacher. I played hot for teacher, man. I didn't understand what it was about. You got to understand, I was five years old. Now, in hindsight, going to Catholic school... Playing the Van Halen record with the little baby angel smoking a cigarette and blasting hot for teacher. Maybe not my best move. Or was it the best move I've ever had? I think it was your best move. Uh, REO Speedwagon. So the Not So Silent Night Christmas album came out in 2009. Oh, wow. Okay, so it, well down the line. Yeah. Well so, past their prime. Yeah, well down. Uh, it's their last album they ever put out. Interesting. Well, you know, sometimes you go, how can, for last. how can we milk this bad boy just a little bit more? I mean, there's a reason that Scott Weiland's Christmas album came out in 2011, <laughs> right? It wasn't 1994. 
Interesting stuff. Uh, you can share your thoughts if you've got one I should hear. 503-417-7575. Continue to tweet at me on Twitter, at Peter Sampson, S-A-M-P-S-O-N. Our number two, almost in the books. Of course, uh, we're celebrating Mike Leach a little bit, who passed away at the age of 61. In the next hour, I'm going to play our most recent interview. We had Mike Leach on this very show just in September. I want to share that with you next. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Peter Sampson with the bald-faced truth. Welcome back in. Peter Sampson in for Canzano. This is the bald-faced truth, hour number three. Appreciate you rolling with me on a Tuesday. I've got Stephen Vaughn with me as well. Uh, We opened up the show remembering Mike Leach, who passed away overnight at the age of 61. Too soon. Mike Leach was one of a kind. Loved having him on this show so frequently. He was always a great guest, always an interesting guest, entertaining. You never knew where the conversation was going to go. And it, it, it all happened so suddenly. I mean, we were just talking about getting Mike Leach back on the show. Uh, very recently, uh, we did have him on September 6th, so uh, just about three months ago, the last time we had Coach Leach on. I want to play this one for you. I remember the conversation. It's a little bit of a long conversation. Of course, it always was with Mike Leach because you never knew exactly what twists and turns it was going to take. So here is Mike Leach with John Canzano uh, just this September on these airwaves. Mike Leach, Mississippi State football coach, friend of this show. He is currently walking his dog. Uh, it's good to know you do that. You don't have a person that does that for you? No. Uh, no, we got the dog recently. It's uh, it's a British lab. She's really well-trained, and it was, um, so it was a situation where uh, one of the guys that ran the kennel um, you know, it's had some problems at the house and, you know, he just needed to kind of downsize and get a place for the dog. So instead of the dog staying in the kennel there at the kennels, you know, he wanted to have a good home. So it's, it's trained like crazy. She can do anything. And so, yeah, it's pretty cool. Kind of a new adventure. And, uh, so yeah, she'll walk always on your left side if you insist on it. She'll fetch anything. The, the best is watching her swim out in the water and haul all kinds of stuff back. Um, she'll uh, sit. Oh, she'll stay, and yeah, you know you can see her twitching up because she really wants to go chase whatever you throw. <laughs> but she'll stay until you say go, and so pretty clever. Did you have, like, when you were growing up as a kid, did you, uh, you strike me as a guy who probably had a dog as a kid. Yeah, we did. Had quite a few. We lived out of town uh, in Wyoming on 10 acres. And uh, one visual that's a really good one, it wasn't always like this. Um, But we had a Labrador. We had a yellow tomcat. We had a raccoon and a Vichy with short hair. 
<laughs> and they would all hang out together. Love that. You know, wander around the house. Wander, you know, not the house so much, but the front yard. Uh, you know, pretty much did everything together. Um, once in a great while, the cat would get a little tired of it and go off on his own, but uh, he would always rejoin his buddies and hang out for the most part. We just got through week one. Uh, obviously, massive overreaction by fans and media to wins and losses. You've been at this a long time. You had you had good week ones. You've had some bad week ones. Uh, what's what's the right reaction? You know when when you when you have a week one or as a coach, how do you approach that? Well, nobody wants to be judged by their exclusively by their week one. Um, I think teams uh, improve the most the first three games. Everybody says the first one and probably, yeah, the most that single game, but the first three games, I mean, after three games, uh, you know, and not even winning all three of them, but the teams that are improving all three of them, those are the guys that are going to be pretty good in the end. And uh, uh, because everybody's got a lot of work to do, and you don't always know how it's going to spill out. But uh, in our case, this was one of the better first games that we've had, and I gave that by I felt like we played well. I felt like we were on the same page. There was a hollow spot the second half where we took our foot off the gas. Um, but then we did finish well. And uh, and you know, but in particular, playing together and we're relatively consistent for a first outing, but still plenty of work because that's what you – First game, you identify all kinds of things you got to fix, and we certainly did. But uh, I thought a good start. I mean, the important thing is to fix and don't panic if uh, <clears throat> if it went bad, and uh, if it went good, do not hesitate to hammer on them next week in practice. <laughs> Because that's just the nature well, you got something all figured out. And football, under the best of circumstances, is played in adversity and pain. And so it's always, you know, tempting to relax and, you know, that type of thing. And we don't have time for any of that. The Pac-12 in its last nine against the SEC is in opening weeks is one and eight. Uh, Florida took care of Utah in a tough one. Oregon got boat raced. Uh, I was in Atlanta. It was interesting just to see the physicality of Georgia, a good SEC team. You're you're around that now, and you know the Pac-12. What what is that gap like in, in your mind when you see, you know, the physicality that you see at week to week at the SEC? Um. I don't think there's much with the skill guys. There may not be any, 
Um, with the defense line in particular, especially the D-line, it's significant. I think that, um, and I've thought this for a long time, the SEC, what they do better than any other conference is, you know, everybody wants to say the skilled guys. Well, I mean, there's been skilled guy after skilled guy after skilled guy that's torn up the SEC that's from California or Texas, you know. Um, no, it's defensive linemen. The defensive linemen in the SEC region, there's a lot of them. They're really good. Statistically, they put more in the NFL um, than any other comp. Uh, by them, he the quarterback gets right into the backfield. Um, it uh, speeds up the plays a little bit and makes it feel faster. Um, I always felt like uh, most teams um, in the in most conferences. I would include, with your exception, uh, uh, the Big 12, too. Um, you'd have, like, one or two flat-out bonafide defensive linemen, you know, real-deal defensive linemen. Now, you'd be lining other people up there, certainly. But um, some of those guys are kind of uh, – the meaner, quicker guard type of guy because you need somebody there. Or, you know, the bigger linebacker type of guy. Um, a lot of teams in the SEC can line up with four to six just bonafide D-line. And I think uh, that's where the biggest difference is. You guys will go to Arizona this week. It's uh, you know this Arizona team is uh, really different. I mean, fifty new players this year. He's got fifty new guys. What you know when you look at you know your turnover year to year, have you had years where you had fifty new players? Yeah, every time I took a new job. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Uh, I don't know. Our first couple of years here. Um, you know, one thing I never really heard mentioned much, it was kind of an interesting dynamic that people didn't really think of. Um, during the COVID madness, uh, you know, they gave everybody an extra year. And so if you had a lot of seniors some people people had as many as 98 guys on scholarship. The total, you know, is typically 85, but all grandfathered in with the extra year because of COVID. So as many as 98, we had 78. We just didn't have many seniors. And uh, so I think that in some cases, you know, there were a few kind of aberrations perhaps just because of how stuff stacked up in sequence. This year will be uh, interesting because everybody's back to 85, you know? Yeah. 
the Jaden Delora, you get, you know, you recruited that kid uh, at Washington State. You'll see him on the other side at Arizona. Is uh, that happen a lot? Like when you, I, I guess it does because it's guys that maybe you get, guys that get in the portal, guys that go other places. But you must have saw saw something you liked in him as a high school kid. Obviously, oh, I really liked him. I really liked, uh, you know, I mean, I, I recruited him to Washington State, and then, you know, I took the job at Mississippi State, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of one of my reservations in doing that was not having the chance to coach Jaden Delora, uh, Delora, you know, yeah. and I think he's a good player. I think he's a tough kid. Uh, obviously, I've liked him since high school. Thought he looked pretty good the first game. Yeah, they. You know, when you look at film of them, and I know you you guys do your game planning on Monday nights. Um, you know, you put together a game plan. How much of it of your game plan is based on what they're doing versus maybe what you're doing? Well, you we always hear coaches say. Hey, we don't want to change what we do, but you—they obviously do when an opponent comes in. So, how does that amalgam come together when you're game planning? Well, you try to match it up. I mean, if you have a good package, if you have a good offensive package, and what I think a good package is is uh, one that you have the ability to first attack the whole field, and by the whole field, I mean sideline to sideline to about 30 or 35 yards downfield because um, I'm going up a hill. Uh, your pass protection is going to break down somewhere around three to three and a half seconds if you have a blocker for everybody and you do a pretty good job. Which, you know, I don't have anybody that uh, can, uh, everybody says, can you throw it 60 yards? Well, I mean, can you pass protect that long? <laughs> I mean, do you have somebody on your team that can run 60 yards in three and a half seconds consistently? Because, you know, after that, it's a broken play. And, you know, different stuff can happen on broken plays, but, you know, maybe a rollout, be able to hold it, they go clear downfield. But, you know, you can't constantly be trying to manufacture that. I mean, because you just can't mass produce it. So uh, you want to attack the whole field. You want to get it in everybody's hands. Uh, and it has to be simple enough that uh, you can consistently execute it. So then within that, you know, the other team's going to have you know, a defensive scheme. Usually they have a package, not always. Sometimes you find somebody that's just calling defense. You know, there's 
rolling stuff out there that doesn't necessarily complement uh, what they're trying to do. You see guys on offense do that too sometimes. But uh, And so then you try to find your stuff that matches up, whether it's mismatches or space, with what they're trying to do. And in many cases, you want to have a lot of options, not just, okay, we're going to call this because the third read might be open. You know, it needs to be something like, okay, uh, you know, they're going to cover somebody, but we have a good shot of any of these three routes being open. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's numbers or leverage. Numbers means I have more numbers than you. I mean, we have three receivers right there. You have two defenders. Uh, leverage means, okay, they're inside shade, so I want to go outside. They're outside shade, so I want to go inside. They're playing off, so I want to go underneath. They're playing tight, so I want to go behind. Um, and you, you're trying to pick out and practice what you think is uh, best going to attack it and give you a variety of options. Now, if you see something that you don't expect, which you certainly could, because, you know, it seems to me in a lot of cases, not all, um, sometimes they'll just run whatever they feel is their best defense. Sometimes they'll go into it and they're going to say, all right, we're going to pressure these guys. Okay, now if you respond pretty good to the pressure, then a lot of times they'll go the opposite. Okay, now we're going to drop everybody. Well, if you respond well to that, then a lot of times you get them kind of just dialing up both of it to try to keep you off balance. Now, if you don't respond to it, they're going to just keep running it and pound on you. And um, so you're trying to um, – so if they do something you don't expect, you know, and the game will say you thought they were going to drop another blitzing, well, your package should have some blitz beaters, you know, depending on how they do it, where they come from, how they set up their defense. And so you got to be flexible enough to – I was uh, in a restaurant the other day, and we uh, were waiting for a table, and, you know, they said, hey, you know, we're short-staffed, and I was thinking about this. My wife and I were debating why the workforce has, uh, has, a, has a hole in it. Like, literally, there is, you know, businesses are saying we, we can't find employees. Everybody's hiring. Uh, wh- what happened to the workforce? Because I told my wife, I said, you know who's going to know? Mike Leach is going to know. Because I know well, you've, you've I thought about it. <laughs> I don't know exactly. I think um, – I don't know exactly. In some cases, somebody did an article and added it up that through, you know, everything from welfare grants, various federal aids, you know, you can generate eighty to 90000 a year, which is higher 
than the average American income. So, you know, a bunch of those guys below that are just getting paid better the way we've structured our federal welfare system. Uh, I also think there's a little bit of a hangover from uh, COVID. I mean, COVID made people bitter. They locked them up. Uh, couldn't wait to have their freedom and get out. But I think there's a little bit, and I would feel it occasionally myself, where there's kind of a little bit of a relief to some irresponsibility if you want to stay home that day or finish a series of something or other on Netflix. And I think some of it's just uh, getting people in stride in the routine of going to work, enjoying it, and finding it fulfilling. Uh, the other thing in some cases, employers have uh, kind of the reverse, it's uh, stay home. We don't want you here. We don't want to pay this, this, and this. Uh, you send us your reports or be on the phone calls type of thing with Zoom. So I think it's just kind of, in a lot of cases, getting the momentum going again. And uh, so, you know, I mean, if you get paid more to be unemployed, a lot of people will be, you know. We're talking to Mike Leach, Mississippi State football coach. All right, before I cut you loose, uh, you know, Arizona, as you look at them on film, what do you see? Uh, I think, well, first of all, they had a really good first game. I thought they played hard. Uh, you know, I think they've gotten definitely a year better. Uh, they've got some speed at key uh, skill positions. And then the other thing, you know, it's funny, you, know, you wonder, but uh, some of the guys, their sizes that they have listed are pretty darn big. We'll see if they're actually that big, and maybe they are. Maybe they're <laughs> even bigger. Well, like Nebraska it, used to yeah. list, list their guys as this big. They'd list some guy uh, 6'2", 285. Like hell, the guy was 6'2", 280. That could be 6'6", 320 pounds, you know. <laughs> and then you'd have other schools kind of more grandstanders and you'd shave off a couple inches and you know 25 pounds and that's what they were you know what's the worst case you ever saw where where a guy was not as advertised uh, i don't know there's definitely been some i mean there's so many that it's hard to pinpoint one <laughs> you know we're we're not very good here i mean i'd love, love to tell you the size you know we we don't typically exaggerate um you know, they, you know, they're doing the roster. How big is this guy? Well, sometimes the SID and the assistant strength coach are kind of eyeballing it. Well, I think he's about this or that. And occasionally we exaggerate. Usually it's understated. And then the other thing that'll happen is sometimes from their sophomore or their freshman year to their senior year, it never gets changed. So. Hmm. The guy early stayed the exact same size, you know. Um, it just depends how much you focus on it. You miss Some coaches are obsessed with it, want it to dead on perfect, and their weights will fight no matter what. Uh, others want to make them bigger, think it'll scare the other guy, uh, especially teams that are highly 
touted and highly billed. Um, you know, they want to psych you out with, you know, the guy's only this big and he comes out and he's a monster, you know. Before I let you go, the playoff expansion, the realignment, couple Pac-12 schools in the Big Ten. I don't like, uh, you know, I don't like the uh, geography not being lined up with conferences, but I get why the Pac-12 ended up there. Um, it's out of your control. It's a lot out of every coach's control. But what do you make of what's happening in college football right now? Oh, I'm caring. First of all, I don't think they're done. Because a lot of this is uh, impetuous decisions based on keeping up with the Joneses. And as soon as you attach the name university to something, everybody acts like it's brilliantly well thought out. And some aren't, <laughs> some aren't. But, hey, I remember distinctly when, um, you know, in the Big East. And, I mean, there wasn't this they talked about it. No, no, TCU joined the Big East. Boise State joined the Big East. And I think San Diego State joined the Big East. <laughs> and they're in there about eight months, and then they came to their senses and they <laughs> left. But um, I don't know. I'm just thinking that, you know, I've, I think uh, under even circumstances, uh, UCLA, USC certainly capable of competing with the Big Ten, but I'd consider this. Uh, those guys have to take five trips over two to three time zones uh, a year, and uh, their opponents their opponents only have to take uh, less than one every other year. So, you know, that fifth trip flying back, trying to figure out, you know, I mean, it's a pretty taxing deal. Mike Leach, you're the best. I appreciate you coming on with us. We'll get you later in the season. Miss talking to you, and I know people in the Pacific Northwest uh, especially miss hearing from you on the show. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, call any time. I probably won't have a cough next time. <laughs> I might, but I probably won't. Mike Leach walking his dog. That's why you come to the BFT. I want you to leave it right here. You got the bald face truth statewide. That's Mike Leach with John Canzano just three months ago. Wanted to play that. His last appearance on this show. So many memorable appearances with Mike Leach. I know we went heavy in that segment, but I wanted to do it. Uh, I just, I always enjoyed his talks with John while he was walking around. We'll go away, come back on the other side. More sports talk for you. Peter Sampson and for Canzano, it's the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back in. Peter Sampson in for JC. This is the Bald Face Truth on the BFT Radio Network. Going to have a short segment here to get back on the clock. I did just want to play Mike Leach's most recent appearance on this program. And it does look like the uh, Mississippi State Bulldogs, they they are going to uh, uh, play in their January 2nd ReliaQuest bowl game against Illinois. Uh, they do want to do that. They're 100% behind playing the bowl game. Uh, and they say uh, AD Bracky Brett said that that's what Coach Leach would expect them to do. It's what he would want, and it's what they should do. So the players are going to return to campus on Thursday. 
going to get some lift in. The next full bowl practice is Friday. Defensive coordinator Zach Arnett is in charge of the program. He will coach the Bulldogs in the bowl game. So they are going to play in their game and uh, do the best that they can to honor uh, their coach. All right, we we are going to take another break because, again, that first segment with that interview with Coach Leach went so long. We'll get back on the clock. Coming up on the other side, I've got the five at five, the five things in sports today that you need to know. Peter Sampson and for Gonzano, it's the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Gonzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back in. Peter Sampson here for John Canzano. This is the Bald Face Truth on the BFT Radio Network. Appreciate you rolling with me on your Tuesday. If you're in Portland, keep it here at 6 o'clock. Um, I get relieved by, well, me for the Pulse, the Portland-only show. I will take you home until 7 o'clock tonight. Nice four-hour on-air shift for me. And uh, we're doing a little bit little bit late, but it is the 5 o'clock hour. I want to give you the five biggest things going on in the world of sports. Here is the 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. We start in the NFL. Wide receiver Cole Beasley has come out of retirement. He's going to join his former team. He signed to the Bills practice squad today. In theory, he helps at slot receiver and adds to an offense that's had some inconsistent production at the position at times. Of course, he spent two weeks on the Buccaneers practice squad before deciding to retire in October. He was active with Tampa Bay for two games. He had four catches, 17 yards. And his agent told ESPN in October he was retiring after 11 years to be with his family after 11 seasons. It's time to be a full-time dad and husband. Now, Beasley later tweeted, this is last month, in response to a fan asking why he retired from the Buccaneers, and he said they weren't going to use him. They have too many guys getting paid big money for them not to be on the field. So he requested permission to seek a trade from the Bills in early March, but was ultimately released after no trade partner was found. And in his three seasons with the Bills, he was second on the team in you know, receiving first downs. Uh, He finished last season with the same number of receptions as the year before, 82, but had 274 fewer receiving yards, and he only had the one receiving touchdown, which was his fewest in a season since all the way back in 2012 when he had zero. Now, of course, the Bills have Josh Allen. Uh, You know, Isaiah McKenzie was expected to fill the slot receiver position. He had six drops this year. And almost 100 fewer receiving yards in the slot than Stefan Diggs. McKenzie does lead the team in touchdowns from the slot with four. But all in all, the Bills, especially considering the quarterback position that they have, they have not had uh, a ton of uh, success with receivers in the slot. The Bills lead the league in drops. They have 29 drops this year. That's the first of your five at five. Second thing. Lionel Messi said losing their first game actually helped Argentina to reach the World Cup final. He said they passed an acid test in bouncing back from losing against Saudi Arabia in their opening match to reach the World Cup final. Sunday's showpiece will see them face either France or Morocco. I'm rooting for Morocco. After Messi inspired Argentina to a 3-0 win over Croatia. 
Messi opened the scoring with a 34th minute penalty. And then Julian Alvarez uh, had a brace either side of halftime, including a fantastic solo run for his first goal. I was watching that here in the studio. Argentina moving on to the final facing either France or Morocco in uh, the end of what's been a pretty entertaining World Cup so far. Uh, NFL tests confirm Kyler Murray has a torn ACL. We watched him go down in last night's 27-13 loss to the New England Patriots after a three-yard run on the third play of the game. Non-contact injury is pretty much never good. Uh, He was carted off the field and did not return. An MRI today confirmed that injury. This is a big deal for the Cardinals, not just because, look, I mean, you know, they're 4-9. and They lost uh, already. There were questions about a team that had Kyler Murray, DeAndre Hopkins. Were they underachieving? But a quarterback that scrambles as much as Murray does, not to mention having just signed that huge deal, there's going to be questions about how he's going to look when he comes back, uh, presumably next season. Certainly not going to be the start of next season. Uh, He might not play at all next season. They might let him take time off and let him fully rehab. Remains to be seen. But the Cardinals have big money committed to a scrambling quarterback who already had questions about, is he the guy to lead a team to the promised land? Now, is he really going to be able to play the style of game that he likes to play anymore? Not exactly sure if that's going to happen. Staying in the NFL, the NFL Players Association has initiated an inquiry into why last night's game wasn't stopped when Patriots wide receiver Devontae Parker showed concussion symptoms. And I don't know if you saw that, if you remember it. Of course, the big news was Kyler Murray's injury, but Parker was wobbly getting up after a hit in the first half. And uh, a teammate had to signal to officials to stop the game and get him out before the next play. And uh, Parker called out the NFL on his Instagram story today, writing, get on y'all's bleeping jobs, NFL. And he thanked uh, his teammate for being aware of the situation. And obviously, the reason that's a kind of a big deal is remember this year with the uh, Tua Tagovailoa situation. Man, that was scary. Watching that, obviously, uh, Tua already had the concussion. Er, the, uh, what do they call it? A back injury? It was obviously a concussion. Like, I'm not a doctor, but you all saw what I saw earlier this season, right? Where Tua slammed the back of his head against the turf, and then he was all wobbly, Bambi on ice. Oh, no, 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 he's fine. It's a back injury. And then we saw the horrific thing that happened, uh... That was Thursday night football, just four days later. Very scary stuff. The NFLPA initiated a review after that. And uh, so this is already kind of a theme uh, this season. So uh, Parker sustained his head injury on a 10-yard catch at the, uh, the 419 mark of the first quarter following a hit and tackle by Antonio Hamilton over the middle. So... Uh, The Players Association keeping tabs on player safety. Of course, the NFL talks a big game about player safety. Do they really care that much? Well, if it's not inconvenient, I guess they do. Final thing in your five at five. Damian Lillard got off on a heater last night. 38 points in only three quarters of action. Tied the franchise record which was also his personal best 11 made threes in the game. 
But the real issue is that the Minnesota Timberwolves are not a very good team, and they couldn't keep it close enough to justify keeping Dame Lillard out there in the fourth quarter to maybe break that record, exceed his personal best, and maybe even mess around with Klay Thompson's record, 14 made threes in a game. It could have happened, except the Timberwolves, frankly, they didn't show up, and they ended up getting beat fairly handily enough to the to the tune of Damian Lillard only playing 29 minutes in that game. Isn't that how that goes? Whenever a dude goes off, it's like he obliterates the other team single-handedly. You know, you're never going to see Klay Thompson going for 60 and 3. Well, you're never going to see that again. But, for example, when Klay Thompson had 60 and 3 quarters, it was a blowout. You know, that's why Kobe's 81 was so impressive. It, it was it wasn't a close game, but it's not like the Raptors were losing by 35 and they actually left him in there. You know what, man? Do your thing. Go. Get those points. Who cares what Jalen Rose thinks? Light them up, Kobe. So, props to Damian Lillard for getting it done. Props to Damian Lillard for getting to rest the third quarter. He's only been back a couple games. He's already had to miss time twice with the calf injury. I understand what Chauncey Billups is doing. Frankly, I agree with what he's doing. But, man, if the Wolves weren't so bad, it would have been fun to maybe see Dame go for 45, maybe even 50, and tie that NBA record for made threes in a game. That's your 5 at 5. We do it every day on this show. It's a little later than normal, but you knew we'd get to it. We're going to go away, come back, wrap up shop on the other side. Got to talk a little MLB, hot stove action. And I always look forward to uh, reading the manager survey that uh, comes out on ESPN. And uh, I like to sort of see, you know, what are the major questions in baseball? And this year it's really relevant because you got the rule changes coming. Supposedly going to speed up the game, make it a little more exciting. I'm really excited about, uh, you know, maybe not having four-hour and ten-minute snooze fests anymore. Do managers think it's actually going to work? Well, I'll tell you next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back in final segment. Peter Sampson in for John Canzano. MLB Hostove. It's been been hopping this year. I'm excited for baseball season next year. Reason being. Bunch of new rules debuting. Expected to speed up the game, make it a little more exciting. You've got the pitch clock, the shift ban, more, the bigger bases. I didn't really think the bigger bases thing mattered. Like what, you're okay, you're expanding, you know, each side of the base. It's essentially you gain an inch and a half on each side until you think about how many bang, bang, called out, stealing seconds there are. And you go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is why... Like the leader in like I don't remember who it was. I think it was might have been Trey Turner, but it's like the leader in stolen bases over the last six years averages like thirty one a year. We're a long way from Ricky Henderson and Vince Coleman. You know what I'm saying? But if you actually make the bases bigger to the point where the distance from the edge of first base to the edge of the close edge of second base, I think it's going to be four and a quarter, four and a half inches closer. That's a huge deal when it comes to maybe bringing speed back into the game to the point that maybe instead of a big bat, you carry just a speedster on the back end of your roster who can pinch run. Get a little bit more excitement. 
On top of that, of course, the shift ban. I'm all for the shift ban. I'm tired of seeing sluggers just grounding out to the, you know, the shortstop up the middle or the second baseman playing in right field. And I hear the argument all the time. Well, why don't they just adjust if they're so good? Hit it to the opposite. Field. You're right. You're right. They should. You should train and do one thing that you've learned to be the best in the world at literally three million times, and you should just start doing it completely differently now. Statistically, your best chances are still to keep your swing and to uh, to meet the ball with full contact, a slight pull. It's not that easy to adjust. And, in fact, that's what they want you to do with the shift. They'd rather you ground out weekly to third base. It just makes the game more unwatchable. And then, of course, the pitch clock, I think, is the biggest deal. We've seen success at the minor league level with the pitch clock where all of a sudden we have a multiple games, like dozens of games that came in under two hours. And uh, the vast majority, it took something like 23 minutes off the average game in the minor leagues. Very, very happy about all those things going together. Stephen Vaughn, is there any particular rule out of the three I just mentioned? What are you What are you looking at the most here? Uh, for me, it's the shift. I'm, I'm very interested in that. I, uh, I liked your take on the bases. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But I guess every inch matters uh, in a lot of things. But um, That's true. For, for me, uh, the shift, I, you know, I'm one of those people that kind of I kind of think like you know what you should adjust to the game. But what I will say is it's gonna make this gonna make baseball more exciting because there's gonna be more hits, more action. Because there are so many times, so many players, all those left-handed sluggers that just ground out to you know short right field when they put the second baseman or the shortstop over there in right field. It's gonna just open it up a little bit more. You know, guys like Kyle Seager is he gonna come back out of retirement because he's he's gonna start, <laughs> he's gonna start batting like 250 because he's gonna get some easy hits that he wasn't getting the last few years. So, you know, I understand and I like the rule that they're gonna change it because it's gonna open it up a little bit. But at the same time, I always feel like it's kind of like the the hack a shack rule. Like just get better at free throws. If that's the thing, just get better right. at free throws, and then you won't get fouled. Same thing when you're getting you know you pull it down the right or the right side of the of the field just. Get a little better hit to the left side. Yeah, yeah. I see, and and like, don't get me wrong. Adjust to the pitch, spray it wherever you can. But but again, like, it's sort of like when you say adjust to the game and the proverbial proverbial you, not you, Stephen. But it's like okay, it's like getting rid of dunking. You know, remember when they did that? Kareem Abdul Jabbar he's too good. He can't dunk. Well, okay, so adjust to the game. Don't dunk anymore. But people want to see that. We don't want to see Mike Trout trying to do his best Wade Boggs impersonation. And there's only one Wade Boggs. It's Wade Boggs. It's it's making the game more boring. So, yeah, adjust to the game. And if you adjust to the game, the game is worse. I hate that. But I also do hate a second baseman standing out in deep right field and just taking away single the shortstop taking away singles up the middle, the second baseman taking away, you know, ground balls through the right side. You can still play shallow outfield, but you gotta have two infielders on each side of second base. They're gonna look at that. Depending on what happens, don't be surprised if you have to have all your infielders on the dirt. That might be coming next, but at least for now, each side. And it's going to make the managers a little more important, right? Like, how do they yes. strategize against this as well? And you're right. Like, it's going to open up the game, and, it, and it's going to help the hitters more. And we see this in other sports, right? Like, the NBA, you're not allowed to touch anybody on defense. It makes it wide open for the offense yeah. to score. The NFL, all the rules are you know open up for the offense to score a lot of points so they can throw the ball around the field. Same type of thing here in baseball. They're just trying to make it more um, entertaining on the offensive side by having less players on the inside. So I do like that rule. I understand it. 
Um, but you know, the purist in me says, well, just hit the ball opposite way. But it is a lot harder, a lot, a lot easier to say it than to actually do it. So, so I, so I do like the rule too, that they're going to change it. Yeah, and and you combine the the, the bases with the shift. What that's going to give you is that's going to emphasize contact. With the, with the shift rule, and then again, those bases, speed and contact. Because the thing is, is the game does need to be more exciting. I like the idea of more offense, but they tried that over the last 30 years, and it was just home runs, strikeouts, and walks. That's literally the only, you know the, the three true outcomes. And it was boring. I, I still watch baseball. People tell me it's boring every day, and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, man. I'm not. But if we can get back to that old style baseball, and again, I, you know, to me, when I was a kid, I'm talking the 80s, but you had you had Tony Gwynn, you had Wade Boggs, you had contact hitters, you had dudes stealing 80 bases, you had suicide squeezes, you still did bunts, you still, you know, you still sacrificed yourself in the ground out. All that stuff that's disappeared, if we can bring that back, I'm thrilled with more offense. Because when I said I don't care about offense, it's because, again, it was just strikeouts and home runs. That's what's boring. If we can get back to that classic style of play, and don't get me wrong, we're never going to go back to like the 1940s or 50s. I I accept the fact that the DH is in both leagues. I don't like it, but I accept it. Fine. That's fine. The game can evolve. I accept that. But we have to get it back more balanced, a little more entertaining to watch. If Otherwise, this sport is going to die like with me because I'm like the youngest age that like is still really passionate about baseball. They have to get younger people, man. Yeah, I mean I like baseball, but I'm not as passionate as you are. Right. Like I follow it every day. I don't really have a team, but you know the playoffs come around, I get into it. I do like the fact that it's going to open it up for more type of players, right? Like you touched on it, the true leadoff hitters that are the speedsters. You look at the Phillies this year who are in the World Series. Kyle Schwarber's bat leadoff. Like that's not a leadoff hitter, right? Like <laughs> that is your cleanup hitter. I think with these rules, you can get more of a speed guy on because either he can steal second base or he can maybe lay down a bunt and get an easy single. I think it's going to be a lot more fun. Yeah, man, give me that 1985 Cardinals style, man. Walk, steal second, bunt into third, score on the sack fly. So we'll see how it goes. The uh, the uh, the managers in the uh, the survey anon- or overwhelmingly uh, support the changes. They understand, look, we're in the entertainment business. We're not entertaining people. we got to get a lot better at this. With that, I'm out of time. If you're in Portland, leave it right here. I'm going to give you another hour with my local show, The Pulse, statewide. Keep it tuned wherever you are to your great local programming. We'll be back tomorrow. See ya.